Hi there, welcome back. Trying to listen to legal AF, but having some technical difficulties. Thanks for 323k, even though it's just law enforcement surveilling me without a warrant. As usual. And the NSA now, too. This one thing makes you a new creation, blah, blah, blah. One of my touches. Legal AF is live right now. Trapped and nowhere to run. Squirms like a rat. Diapered on squirms like a rat. With game-changing formulas that promote okay, mental sharpening. Excellent wording. Direction was Katanji Brown. Okay, we're gonna pull up. Oral arguments and following the oral arguments where Donald Trump went out and said that indeed it was an insurrection on January 6th, but he says it was caused by Nancy Pelosi contradicting what his lawyer argued in court. We're also going to talk about how special counsel Jack Smith filed what appears to be a precursor to an appeal, finally, of Judge Eileen Cannon's uh, ridiculous and unlawful orders in one of her most recent orders. She ordered that on the public docket. Special counsel Jack Smith and the government released the names of all of the confidential witnesses, the confidential witness reports, FBI code names. Special counsel Jack Smith explains that, Judge Cannon, you used the wrong legal standard. And even if you use the right legal standard. Get me on the ballot. There would be manifest injustice if you placed the lives of confidential witnesses in peril by your ruling. Also, Justice Arthur Ngoron in the New York Attorney General civil fraud case sent a scathing series of emails to Donald Trump and Donald Trump's co-defendant lawyers uh, in the case. This follows Trump's former CFO, Alan Weisselberg, purportedly being in negotiations for a plea agreement. There's Weisselberg right there on the uh, on the feed for uh, engaging in false statements during the New York Attorney General civil fraud case itself. Justice Ngoron asked Trump's lawyers, Weisselberg's lawyers, do you know anything about this? Because under the New York laws of uh, rules of professional conduct, you as lawyers have an ethical obligation to bring that to the court's attention. Alina Habba's response is that her ethics counsel, MAGA stands for make attorneys get attorneys, her ethics counsel says she shouldn't respond on to the inquiry essentially contradicting what's in the new york rules of professional responsibility for lawyers trump's other lawyer cliff robert went on to attack justice and goron justice and goron was basically like bet i'll take this all under advisement i'm going to issue my ruling soon my expectation of michael popak is that we will get a very strong ruling from justice arthur and goron this week also what's going on in the washington dc criminal case after the dc circuit court uh, fuck is wrong with this shit? I don't want you to hear this.
gonna want me to hear it either. Of course. Fucking pigs. Help us now, these fucking pigs. Archangels. God, protect us and deliver us from these fucking pigs. Make the pigs leave us all alone. Of appeals previously Thank you. Uh, also affirmed the ruling by the district court denying Donald Trump's absolute immunity argument. We'll talk about all of this on legal. Legal AF. Learn on divine me and Mercedes Benz. My friends all die posted. I must make Here's Michael Popak. And Popak, you had a big interview as well with Judge Ludig um, that uh, is going to be on our YouTube channel uh, tomorrow on Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 Pacific. I'm excited to watch that. You know what? It's it's such an honor and a privilege to bring Michael Ludig on, Judge Ludig on. Constitutional scholar, patriot. Um, agnostic when it comes to the role of politics in our criminal justice and constitutional justice system. He just wants to get it right. And we were able to talk in a far-ranging interview that lasted about 45 to 50 minutes about the D.C. Court of... Things we're going to talk about today, the D.C. Court of Appeals ruling on Tuesday that there's no immunity of of a president for conduct he committed while he was president to dismiss a criminal indictment. Thursday's Supreme Court oral argument on the 14th Amendment, Section 3, and whether this court is going to have the balls or the brass ones to make a decision based on the 14th Amendment's literal text or not, um, or they're going to punt the issue and uh, it to, over to Congress, so no, to speak. And then we even touched on and, and, um, and have an exclusive about uh, Judge Ludig's view of Robert Hur, the special counsel's 315-page report that in supposed to be one that exonerated Joe Biden, but in damning faint praise, ended up blasting him in certain ways that the judge found to be completely inappropriate. And um, why don't we show that clip as just a teaser right here of your interview that we will be showing in full tomorrow again right here on the Midas Touch YouTube channel. We'll also post it on the Legal AF podcast feed as well, and you can check that out tomorrow at 1 Eastern, 10 Pacific on Sunday. But let's take a look at Judge Ludig's view of the special counsel, Robert Herr's very kind of inappropriate, politicized report. Play this clip. Under the, the, the long-established rules of the Department of Justice as to prosecutorial decisions, the prosecutor only and literally only is to do either of two things. Either indict the person that, that's been investigated or not indict the person in the event in in, in both events in both events Michael the prosecutor is to say nothing else for obvious reasons of critical importance to the to the United States of America and to the Department of Justice Um, it is especially 
an abuse of the prosecutorial power. The sacred prosecutorial power in the case of a special counsel to say one single word if he or she concludes that the subject of the investigation will not be prosecuted. So it's against that drop backdrop that uh, your your viewers should understand the statements by this special counsel in particular. Uh, and again, all I know is from what I watched that 45 minutes and uh, but I heard the most salient things and uh, and in particular. going on particular there's i guess considerable discussion in this 315 page report which again in my view is an abuse of power pure and simple and uh, uh but he goes on at length uh, uh, about uh, the incumbent president's mental capacity in whatever contexts all toward the end of concluding that joe mm -hmm. biden should not be prosecuted that's about as unseemly and an abuse abuse of power as I can imagine. And look, we care about law and order here on the Midas Touch Network on Legal AF. And what you just heard right there is, here's what the law is. Here's what the Department of Justice policy is. And when you try to deviate from that, there could be well-recognized serious repercussions because now you have a written report from a political person, the special counsel, Robert Herr, which also contradicts what we know, what we see, what we hear, what we evaluate. And you have Robert Herr essentially becoming like what a, a doctor <laughs> performing a, a physical. <laughs> beyond any prosecutorial uh, oh, role at all. And ultimately, the finding was that President Biden behaved the exact correct way that you are supposed to. And frankly, because this isn't a political issue, the same way former Vice President Pence behaved and others behaved and Reagan behaved when it comes to the handling of documents, which is very different than Donald Trump who stole the documents intentionally. They were requested back. He lied that they were returned. 
He tried to hide them. He had people literally conceal it, even from his own lawyers. So a search warrant had to be executed. And then Trump was out there talking about the documents and showing war plans and other very sensitive documents to people. So there. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> they didn't, There's a big uh, distinction there, and that's why we need to Trump follow in prison, the facts. Uh, even though the, One facts, of the things that you all all this, all these uh, classified documents, they put me and my veteran friend in prison in jail. Nine minutes flat. Tell the Justice Department to stop giving this motherfucker preferential treatment. Preferential treatment. Also talk about with uh, retired Judge Ludwig, which I'm excited for everybody to see, is his view on the 14th Amendment, Section 3, disqualification of Trump oral argument. And he was very disappointed, would be putting it as a understatement. Why didn't they put him in prison the when they Supreme found some call those classified documents? And what the Supreme Court question. did. Michael Popak, it seems Here's that a good the question. only judge or justice of the Supreme Court, rather, who was focused on the fact that the Supreme Court actually has a job to do. And part of their job, yeah, I know it's hard. Here's a great question. Why didn't they put diapered on it? Question, exclamation point. Why didn't they put diaper Donald in prison after they found all those classified documents at Mar-a-Lardo? Question mark. Why didn't they put Diaper Donald in prison when they found all those classified documents at Mar-a-Lardo? Okay. Justice fucking Democrats. Justice Democrats. Jack E. Smith. Uh, <clears throat> da 
That's seven very tasks for that's Jack Smith, I believe. By the way, you're still there. Yeah, why didn't they put fucking Diaper Donald in prison? Okay. Why did they put him in fucking prison? They found all they found the fucking evidence. Fucking espionage. Right there. Voila. Possession. Is nine tenths of the law, right? <clears throat> Jackie Smith. Interesting. Uh, Jackie, that's 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 my that's my little mom, little mommy, my little chicken hen friend with 11 babies. Hard is to determine if Ayo. somebody engaged in an insurrection and how they should process the fact that this is an insurrection was Katanji Brown Jackson a President Biden appointee? So if you want to know about President Biden's instincts for hiring the right justice or bringing in the right justice, she was the only one really focused on this idea of, but isn't it our job to focus on an insurrection? I mean, fucking jail. Nine minutes flat. What's your definition, Trump's lawyer, of what an insurrection is? So let me play for you this clip because... There were a lot of lowlights that I know you'll go over during this oral argument. Let me start off, though, with what I thought the highlight is, what I think all of the justices should have been focused on. This is Katanji Brown Jackson, and here she is asking Trump's lawyer um, uh, about Jonathan Mitchell's Trump's lawyer's name about what's your view of this? Was this an insurrection? Play this clip. Question. Um, the Colorado Supreme Court concluded that the violent attempts of the petitioner supporters uh, in this case to halt the count uh, on January 6th qualified as an insurrection uh, as defined by section three. And I read your opening brief to accept uh, that those events counted as an insurrection. Um, but then your reply seemed to suggest that they were not. So what is your position oh, as to that? We never accepted or conceded in our opening brief that this was an insurrection. What we said in our opening brief was President Trump did not engage in any act that can plausibly be characterized as insurrection. Right, so why would not this not be an insurrection? What is your argument that it's not? Your reply brief says that it wasn't because I think you say um, it did not involve an organized attempt to overthrow the government. So That's one of many reasons. But for an insurrection, there needs to be an organized, concerted effort to overthrow the government of the United States through violence. And this and so the point is that a chaotic effort to overthrow the government is not an insurrection? No, we didn't concede that it's an effort to overthrow the government <laughs> either, Justice Jackson. None of these criteria were met. This was a riot. Was caught it was trying to overthrow the government and engaging in espionage. Those things, but it did not qualify as insurrection, as that term is used in Section 3. Thank you. Thank you, Colin. You know, when she said thank you, because she got Trump's lawyer to say that it was shameful, criminal, and violent that was a concession that trump's lawyer um made there and i think smartly strategically there but then said i don't accept and concede that it was an insurrection it was shameful criminal 
and violent. So then Trump goes out right after right. the oral argument, and here's what he says. Play the clip. I heard and I watched, and the one thing I'll say is they kept saying about what I said right after the says it was an insurrection i think it was an insurrection caused by nancy pelosi i want to break all of this down popak i want to hear your reaction to the oral argument first yeah i think that in just following up with the judge uh Ludic interview um he was he was fearful that there was that the court would take um off ramps to make the decision that he believes constitutionally the supreme court has to make the only one it has to make, which is to apply the 14th Amendment, Section 3, and map it under the conduct of Donald Trump, and then conclude, thumbs up or thumbs down, whether he is the type of insurrectionist that was anticipated by the framers and drafters of the 14th Amendment from the Civil War era. Judge <laughs> position as his mind is, it is exactly that if we were to exhume the bodies of the framers and drafters of the 14th Amendment from that period of our history, they would say, what is the delay? This is exactly the type of thing that we were looking for. It's for the courts to decide. It's for the states ultimately to ban. But that's not what John Roberts ultimately led. And even the left wing, the uh, I was surprised by how quickly Roberts was able to get people to coalesce around the concept that he was that he was pitching, uh, which obviously had been discussed before because they so quickly rallied around this position. Even even when Mitchell himself, the lawyer for Trump, he himself didn't agree that these were appropriate exit ramps for his argument. There was something else going on up at the bench by way of the questioning. Roberts led, Chief Justice Roberts led by saying the 14th Amendment was enacted as part of a series of amendments in order to stop renegade states. Why would they have ever permitted a state to take somebody off the ballot and make that ultimate decision when the whole 14th Amendment is ultimately, and the other amendments around it, were all passed by the Civil War era in order to handle the breakaway states of the Confederacy? Why would they ever empower states? And then everybody jumped on board with that. Kagan, uh, who's you know on the left side of the spectrum, jumped in with, why should any one state be able to determine the outcome of the election and disenfranchise other people. Disenfranchisement got picked up by Kavanaugh, who who I thought was a vote that maybe could have been used um, by Roberts if he wasn't going to go down this. We don't want to touch this with a 10-foot pole route, which is obviously <laughs> what they wanted to do. Their, their off-ramp was, this is for Congress. Congress has to decide 14th Amendment, Section 3, conduct and behavior. Kavanaugh said, aren't we disenfranchising all the rest of the state voters in other states if we allow this state to take it off the ballot? Um, and Amy Coney Barrett, the same thing. Sotomayor, I thought um, if there's going to be two votes against this, seven to two-ish, it's going to be Katanji Brown-Jackson, who was the only person on that bench, as you noted, Ben, who was willing to take on the key issues of the case that were framed in the briefing, which was was this an insurrection? Is he the type of federal officer that takes the right kind of oath in order to have the 14th Amendment Section 3 applied to him? And it looks like they're the going to make a ruling States? if they make the ruling based on the oral argument uh, that, that 
forget about the other federal officers, a, a president of the United States of the 14th Amendment, Section 3, cannot be removed from the ballot by an individual state. That has to be an issue, not for the federal Article 3 judges or the, or the United States Supreme Court to make, which is exactly what they're supposed to be empowered to do under all three co-equal branches of government and checks and balance, but that it goes back to Congress for Congress to decide. And that off-ramp is the one that Judge Ludic saw as illegitimate on the on the questioning and the briefing um, on the on the main case upon which the entire foundation of Donald Trump's argument rests. This case that's referred to as the Griffin case, Griffith case. Um, it, I thought right away Judge Sotomayor had courted him by saying it's not a Supreme Court precedent. And the judge that wrote Griffith's case when he got on to the United States Supreme Court took the exact opposite view about whether the 14th Amendment Section 3 is self uh, self-affecting. You can self-activating. You don't need you don't need another step in the process. And uh, I thought he, he founded on that, or he at least conceded honorably that if he loses on Griffith's case, he may have lost his case. So, I, but that's not where everybody else went. They all went into states' rights and why are we why are we touching this? We should let we should let the federal side, which not they didn't interpret as their power, but the power of the um, uh, Congress. The most interesting weirdo uh, discussion that then ensued because of this, everybody jumping on board with this uh, the states' rights issue, is that you got Kavanaugh asking. Um, uh, the the uh, advocate, Mr. Mitchell, who, who, by the way, clerked for Judge Ludic back in the day when he was a law clerk, I asked Ms. Mitchell, well, w would your analysis be different if your, if your candidate, if your client had been indicted for and convicted of insurrection? And he said, yes, except we think we have presidential immunity, which leads us to the other topics we'll be talking about today, which is very interesting because it's nowhere in the literal or original text of the 14th Amendment or its legislative history that there's a requirement for a trial, an, an indictment, a trial, and a conviction on the count of insurrection. We all know that of the 91 or so felony counts against Donald Trump world, uh, I was said worldwide, around the country, not one of them is for this crime of insurrection, things that are akin to it, of course. But that's <coughs> not what the Constitution says. It says engaged, if the person engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the Constitution. And the question here is, who gets to determine who engaged? The Secretary of State charges? of each state? State Supreme Courts, or what I would have thought, the federal courts, Article Three judges, up to the United States Supreme Court. And so I agree with you. You and I were kibitzing a little bit during the oral argument. Uh, And I now Just saying. I side with you. This is either going to be eight to one, nine to zero, or seven to two. But the real uh, in favor of Donald Trump staying on the ballot and, and making bad law, as I as as we've outlined it. Question for you, Ben, as we segue to the other section as well, is is there a grand bargain that's now been discussed, which Judge Ludic thinks is unsavory and should never happen, but that the Supreme Court will give Donald Trump the ballot, but will take <laughs> away his it will support the D.C. Court of Appeals one way or the other about he doesn't have presidential immunity to dismiss his indictment. 
Well, it was always my view, I said, on a technicality, even though I disagree with the technicality that the Supreme Court would find that they would find a way to keep Trump on the ballot and not uh, disqualify him, not affirm the decision by the Colorado Supreme Court, which would have disqualified Trump from the ballot in Colorado. So what we observed was, and what we listened to, and we had like 40,000 people concurrently watching live on the Midas Touch uh, network, basically filling up two Madison Square Gardens. And I saw, you know, how many people were upset with the oral argument. I hope I at least prepared you for the fact that I thought on a technicality, that's where the Supreme Court was going to go. I agree, Michael Popak, that I think it'll be either a nine to zero, more likely an eight to one, or potentially a seven to two. But the Colorado case is going to very confident it will be uh, the decision disqualifying Trump will be reversed. Trump will be permitted to be on the ballot. And then we move to a whole separate case, a whole separate issue of the absolute presidential immunity where Trump had until uh, Monday to file a petition for certiorari before the United States Supreme Court on that issue. And then we'll determine if the Supreme Court even hears the D.C. Circuit's decision uh, affirming federal judge Tanya Chutkin's denial of Trump's motion to dismiss on absolute presidential immunity grounds. And if they do, what is the time frame within which they hold their oral arguments there? The disqualification oral argument, I think in early January or so, the Supreme Court um, basically set the oral argument for February. So it was about a, a month uh, delay to the hearing. And then, you know, we'll see how long it takes them to issue a ruling. So how will that impact the Washington, D.C. federal criminal case? But, you know, th th there is an interesting point that I want to I want to raise as well, which is when Donald Trump's lawyer um, conceded uh, that what happened on January 6th was violent, was criminal and shameful. That sounds like an opening brief that special counsel Jack Smith could write right back to the United States Supreme Court or in the trial brief in the Washington, D.C. criminal case. That's actually why I think Donald Trump then went out and basically said, no, 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 it wasn't that. It was an insurrection caused by Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> and again, so unhinged, so deranged. You don't really even see the media other than by this touch network. But then again, That's we're grown bigger than other, other media outlets. So, you know, when I talk about the media, I think we should bear that in mind. But you got Donald Trump saying that unhinged, you know, those unhinged conspiracies that Nancy Pelosi led the insurrection. Yeah. I mean, it's a, that's very, very, very absurd. But Justice, when I go back, I want to give a little more of my take on the Supreme Court uh, oral argument briefly. And then I want to get into some big developments in the New York Attorney General civil fraud case before uh, also the, the Judge Eileen Cannon, Southern District of Florida, Mar-a-Lago case. And then let's talk even a little bit more about what's going on in Washington, D.C. there in the criminal case and how that relates to the Manhattan District Attorney criminal case. And 
All I can say is a lot is going to be happening. Every day is going to be filled with lots of information, and there are going to be days that move the ball forward towards justice. There are days where we're going to be discouraged, but that's just part of the process. But what I can promise you is we're going to keep you accurately informed with data each step of the way. We'll be right back after our first week break. Most clothes are uncomfortable. They're too tight. We're never actually the size is not. Not to mention the annoyance of trying to put a good outfit together. Everyone wants to dress their best and look good at all. Do for a percent machine later. Oh, I'm always on the lookout for immune strength. Ostromis system is your critical device. Get off your first order. Go to try armor at the right. Let's get back to the show, I guess. Checking something out. Trapped to nowhere to run like a rat. Squirms like a rat. Folks. Win the win the win the need to buy my size in the very start. Whenever you're able to chip in, you never just a buck or two. What would YouTube and your business be? It just might be our hardest fight yet. We make a donation stand and come on you. It'd mean the world to us. Yeah, right. Why don't you spend your own money or fucking rich? Certiorari <laughs> before the Supreme Court, or will issue our mandate to Judge Tanya Chutkin to continue starting back the proceedings which have been stayed since December. And this D.C. panel, Circuit Court of Appeal panel, also made clear that if Trump tries to petition the Unbank panel, spelled E-N space B-A-N-C, meaning the entire all of the judges who comprise the D.C. Circuit uh, Court of Appeals, that just merely petitioning that panel would not continue to stay their mandate. Okay, it would have start the, um, what's the Bluetooth, man? Shout out to KAMP, State of Radio at the University of Arizona. Uh, on the road with Trista Shaw. <clears throat> She's like the wind. <laughs> this is a hmm. Gonna pair it with the TV, see if that works. She's like the wind. <laughs> hmm. Doesn't seem to be working, does it, Trista? Hmm. Hang on. <sighs> Have to first be heard by an unbanked panel because what Trump would try to do is, well, first let me go to the unbanked panel, seek a delay there. Then when I lose there, then I'll go to the Supreme <laughs> Court and try to drag this out months and months and months. So merely petitioning for unbanked review. 
um, will not stay the mandate. It will only be if the Supreme Court agrees to hear oral argument, will the mandate continue to be stayed until such time as the Supreme Court rules. So by giving Trump just that less than a week turnaround, in my view, it kind of makes up for that probably 10 days. It came in about 10 days later than I thought it was going to happen. I thought the latest it would be February 1st. They put it out February 6th, but then they um, really adjusted that schedule to prevent Trump. Can I, can I mention uh, one thing, though, Ben, to tie something back together again? I now believe that one of the reasons that Robert Hur waited so long to issue his report, this new February surprise, is that he was waiting to see what would happen with the D.C. Court of Appeals because it came right on the heels of that because he mentions immunity um, in his discussion. And so I think that or that report was done based on reporting four, five, six months ago, including an interview of Joe Biden. So see how everything, one of the thematics on Legal AF and on this show, is that things hinge on other things. And they've been waiting just as, just as I think the D.C. Court of Appeals hurried up to, to make sure that their order came out before Thursday's oral argument, because they felt that had importance. You know, they so judges and prosecutors do look at the clock and the calendar and developments in other cases for their own case. Let's talk about what's going on before Judge Eileen Cannon. In that case, there's uh, purportedly a trial date still for May of 2024, but we all know that that's completely a joke. May 20th, 2024 will not that trial date's not going to happen. There's supposed to be a status conference March 1st of 2024 to kind of deal with um, you know where where everybody is in in this case. Trump also filed another motion to try to adjourn um, other kind of filing dates and deadlines that he should have filed things back in November with Special Counsel Jack Smith called him out for. But you know, what Donald Trump's trying to do in that case is a combination, his whole strategy, you know, knowing that he's got Judge Eileen Cannon who's complicit. The strategy is gray mail, threaten the Department of Justice that they will basically take the classified information in the case and try to make it public to undermine national security unless the case is dismissed, and also threaten and intimidate witnesses um, who are subject not to necessarily the SEPA protective order, which deals with classified information, but some of the standard things that take place in federal criminal proceedings that are subject to the standard federal criminal protective order, which says that discovery materials and like that you have to turn over to a criminal defendant, you, you know, usually have to turn over to a criminal defendant if it's, you know, exculpatory or there's certain time for when you have to turn it over if it's inculpatory, but you could like wait until the time of trial when it comes to a set of documents called Jenks material. But Trump wants to make that information public, like the identity of confidential witnesses and confidential witness reports with the government and FBI code names, the types of things which form the very essence of why you have protective orders that are entered in these cases to keep the information 
confidential, meaning the defendant can see it, the prosecution can see it, but the public can't see it because it could jeopardize other criminal investigations. It could result in stochastic terrorism where other people will then go after these witnesses. It could uh, incite a criminal defendant to try to, you know, you know, put someone's name out there and put a hit on people. So there's all of these reasons why you keep this information confidential under a protective order. The standard for keeping information confidential under a protective order when it's discovery material turned over by the government to a criminal defendant is what's called a good cause standard. Is there good cause for the government to want to keep this information confidential? And that's a fairly easy standard to meet. However, when it comes to filing things on the public docket, because there is this presumption, of course, that court proceedings are meant to be public, the same way if you were in a courtroom, the public docket has this kind of sacrosanct First Amendment uh, kind of you know view towards it. And so the issue there is it's a different standard than is there good cause to keep this information confidential. The standard is, is there a compelling governmental interest that is narrowly tailored that uh, overcomes a First Amendment presumption? So a compelling governmental interest is a harder standard to keep something confidential when it's on the public docket. So here's the scam it's such an obvious one, and there's case law that protects against it. But here's the kind of, you know, you know, amateur lowbrow scam that Trump basically did. It's why I wanted to give you that framework so you can kind of understand it. Trump goes, let me take all of this discovery material that I received, which is confidential under the good cause standard, and, you know, which includes the names of all of the confidential witnesses in the case and FBI code names and confidential witness reports. What I will do, Trump says, or Trump's lawyers say, is I'm going to file a frivolous motion to compel and just make up that the government hasn't turned over things, which they did turn over. But why I'm really doing this is I want to attach as exhibits all of the witnesses, all the confidential government documents to throw it on the public docket. And then Trump goes, I'm going to argue that this should be released because the government has not shown a compelling government interest. Wink, 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 Judge Eileen Cannon. So Donald Trump files the motion to compel, includes at first redacted copies of all the confidential witness stuff, and then tells Judge Eileen Cannon, and Trump phrases it in a very mischievous way, mischievous way, he goes, I want to file redacted copies on the public docket. But what Trump really meant was to remove the redactions, as special counsel Jack Smith pointed out, on all of this information of confidential informants, confidential witnesses, FBI code names. The special counsel Jack Smith responds to that and says, look, of course this stuff should of course this stuff should remain confidential pursuant to the protective order. This really isn't a major, you know, issue. All it's, it should be very simple. Keep it confidential. Judge Eileen Cannon earlier in the week 
issues an order saying that, Jack Smith, you did not meet the compelling government interest test. You did not show why your class, why your confidential witness list, your FBI code names, why there is a compelling government interest to keep those witness lists, to keep the FBI code names, to keep those confidential government reports secret from the public docket. Again, Trump has access to him, just like Jack Smith does, but keeping it outside of the public docket. And when I saw that ruling from Judge Cannon, I mean, it was horrifying. She's going to get somebody killed. And it should be so obvious that this information needs to be confidential. It, it's so rudimentary that you do not want to expose the names of confidential witnesses in, dis in the discovery process who may not even be witnesses at the trial itself from public disclosure. It's so well known across the country. And by the way, some of the material that Jack Smith turned over earlier just to try to be meticulous and try to expedite the proceedings is material that the criminal defendant, it's called Jenks material, would never even get until after the confidential witness testified at the time of trial anyway. Jack Smith turned it over early to try to expedite the proceedings, but because there was a protective order, and Donald Trump says, I'm, I want to make that info public, and Judge Eileen Cannon's like, yes, let's make it public. So special counsel Jack Smith filed this week on Thursday a motion for reconsideration, a precursor to an appeal of Judge Eileen Cannon's order and basically said, Judge Cannon, you applied the wrong legal standard, number one. It's not a compelling government interest to keep it confidential off the public docket. You have to apply the discovery standard. Just because Donald Trump takes the discovery and attaches it to a frivolous motion to compel doesn't convert those confidential documents into public docket documents that are subject to a compelling government interest test, your, you know, your honor. It is still the good cause standard. So you applied a clearly erroneous standard by saying that the government failed to show a compelling government interest about why these documents should remain confidential. It should be a good cause standard, which we clearly meet that standard. And then Jack Smith cites the 11th Circuit case, which just says that in no uncertain terms. She didn't follow the most basic law. But then Jack Smith also says you would also cause manifest injustice even if you used a compelling interest test, there is a compelling interest here. The compelling interest, Judge Cannon, is you are going to get people killed if you disclose this information. And there have been many, many witnesses who have been threatened here and in other cases. And it is well recognized that a compelling government interest in general is protecting witness safety. Uh, so the even judge has been threatened. There's a woman who just got sentenced to three years for threatening Cannon in this case in Texas. Um, judge Chutkin Ch uh, was the one. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Judge Cannon has been. Th there's a woman in Texas who just got sentenced to three years for attacking Cannon in the Mar-a-Lago case because she does she thinks she's siding with Trump. So that this is what this is what Jack Smith was referring to when he said in his briefing, even your chamber and you have been threatened in this case. And so and so there you have Jack Smith saying, look, you're applying the wrong legal standards. 
you're making a this is an egregious error on a very simple issue. Opak, this is the type of mistake um, or intentionally malicious conduct by a judge. She's finally made a ruling. It still was not like a ruling on a substantive motion to dismiss or anything. It was still an odd ruling that she's like, yeah, make the confidential informants and witnesses public. But that's the kind of mistake and or intentional malice that we've been waiting for that Jack Smith has been positioning for. We can finally go to the 11th Circuit, and he's doing it the right way, too, by taking this another step to say, we're giving you another shot right here and showing you how, because he could have went to the 11th Circuit directly, right. but wants to kind of lock it in that even when presented, you're going to do the wrong. I thought it was a brilliant move by Jack Smith, but finally the walls are closing. I, I agree. The 11th Circuit, as you've noted in the past, and I've referred to it in a hot take as a lemon law. Um, basically, if you screw up three times uh, uh, on substantive issues in a case, you may have disqualified yourself as being the presiding judge over a complicated case. And we're watching now. Um, she's already screwed up twice. She had two appeals and reversals before the case even reached the indictment phase when she tried to interfere Judge Cannon in the search warrant and the continued investigation of Donald Trump. And the judges, including the chief judge in the 11th Circuit, Judge Pryor, said, basically, what are you doing? You, that's, you're not supposed to be involved. That's for the executive branch. You're a judge. Go look on the back of your door. Why are you interfering? And now we've reached the point, even though there's been a lot of these one-line paperless orders and, you know, slow, slow footing, you know, a trial dates, which are all within the discretion of a trial judge. But now you've got a fundamental misapprehension of law that matters. There is a reason, you know, and as the as 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 you alluded to, as Jack Smith said in his papers, you're putting at risk 12 different witnesses for the government that are not supposed to be known to anybody but the defense until the day of trial. It, it, it'll interfere with their testimony. It puts their life at risk. Um, and you know this, Judge, and, you know, uh, alluding to without naming it by name, she's been threatened with an assassination on her uh, with emails and text messages to her chambers. Judge Chutkin, as you referenced, has every judge has. And they quote in the I love when they quote Judge Reinhardt, who's the magistrate judge who we've, we don't talk about a lot. He's almost been he's almost been assigned to the dustbins of history. But he is that really good, sober, appropriate a mature federal magistrate judge under her, under Judge um, Cannon, who who addressed the entire search warrant issue, li listening to the evidence, finding probable cause, allowing the search warrant, and ultimately being upheld. Um, he he quoted the very reasons why you you protect witnesses in this case and potential witnesses, Jenks material and grand jury secrecy um, and outlined all the ways that Donald Trump and the people around him have doxed, attacked and threatened witnesses. And they just to just take a cut and paste right out of Judge Reinhardt and stick it into the filing with Cannon. If they've given her a chance, she's. Put hit temporary pause, recognizing that I don't know how she missed the wrong standard. And yes, that is an F, an F up of epic proportions. That is not only reversible error, but will get you in trouble with your bosses of the 11th Circuit. I mean, that's a big miss to say you needed to meet the standard of clear and convincing or whatever it was instead of just a lower uh, uh, 
a good faith uh, in asking for it. And they even put her back on her own heels and said to the judge, you're the one. And we have operated under the assumption that all of this is confidential because you signed a confidentiality order that required everybody to keep private names and rank and serial number of people. And now you're telling me that you're going to disclose to the, hmm. to the media 12 witnesses? I mean, what is going on? But fortunately for justice, this is where we end, that you and I end up. This is now one cheat. If she screws up the motion for reconsideration, she's giving Donald Trump an opportunity to respond to a sort of full briefing on it. She screws that up and she doesn't reverse course and, and seal again or don't or don't seal. Um, he has a, a fast track ticket right to the 11th Circuit. And he probably has another one, which you touched on. And I know you'll be doing a hot take on it later, which is this whole issue of she's ordered him independently on a, on a related issue to unseal a document um, like by today. So if by today that doesn't happen, he's got no choice but to do something about it, probably at the 11th Circuit or get relief somehow, because he's not going to be he's not going to be sending over to Donald Trump this unredacted, unsealed document. Yeah, she ordered him to turn over in a sealed fashion okay. um, a document that was submitted ex parte, meaning just to the court and under seal, meaning confidential from the public docket. That involved threats against a witness, the reason that it was turned over in an ex parte fashion and not turned over to Trump is it really doesn't have anything specifically to do with this underlying case. But what it reflects is uh, when it comes to the manifest injustice part of special counsel Jack Smith's motion for reconsideration is showing how a witness is being threatened and how there's a another United States attorney's office criminal investigation right. currently taking place and potentially with the implications being is Donald Trump or or one of the co-defendants or someone who is a you know a, an unindicted uh, co-conspirator here involved in pushing these types of threats which is that's one of the reasons why you'd want to submit it ex parte to the judge. Otherwise, look, it is documents that have some relevance to the case. It should be turned over under a protective order to a criminal defendant, unless, of course, it's really not related to the case, or there could be a criminal investigation taking place into somebody who's involved in the case and that there's this additional, you know, there's additional need for it. It has nothing to do with this case. But look, Judge Cannon is clearly fumbling the ball. And you know, one of the things she did, though, fumbling would be putting it nicely, she required Trump to respond to the motion for reconsideration by, I think it was about February 23rd. So again, her dates and deadlines, she's using the paperless orders as a way to push all of these dates and deadlines back, which I'll leave everybody with this thought. While that is certainly frustrating and upsetting, and this is an easy case, the documents case, ultimately, Judge Cannon is creating kind of ethical and judicial conundrums for herself that will have to be addressed sometime in the future. Like anything, you know, where you try to ignore uh, you know, a small pain that grows into a bigger pain that grows into a big, before you know it, you ultimately 
have to address a ruling and she's compounding the problem instead of surgically dealing seriatim one by one with issues as they arise so that will only eventually result in a cluster you know what <laughs> the question is just when does that happen itself meanwhile you have the manhattan district attorney case still scheduled for march 25th you have the dc the dc circuit ruling meaning the dc federal criminal case um could start getting back into you know, back into full swing. We'll see what the Supreme Court ultimately does or or doesn't do there. And then we're looking at ultimately, you know, potentially back to back criminal trials, back to back Trump being convicted of of of, of a felon, being convicted as a felon of multiple times. <laughs> and then ultimately you have Judge Eileen Cannon her case getting kind of pushed back, you know, you know, to 2025 or, or, or later. And ultimately, at that time, with Trump being a convicted felon, I think special counsel Jack Smith can even take kind of more robust and aggressive actions against Judge Cannon at that time, you know, and it actually plays itself out. And I think a in, in a in a better sequence, if you were to have you know, alternatively, the Manhattan DA case and then D.C. or D.C., then Manhattan D.A. I'm perfectly fine with that, with Trump being hit with uh, verdicts and judgments in the amount of over five hundred million dollars, half a billion dollars. One, one comment on that before you leave, because we'll follow it closely on Legal AF and Midas. Fifteenth of um, the next week on Thursday, big letter, red letter day for Donald Trump. We're going to get a final hearing um, uh, by Judge Marchand on when he's going to actually set that. We vote, uh, uh, Stormy Daniels, um, Manhattan District Attorney, prosecution of, of Donald Trump. It's been on the books for the 24th, but he set a hearing for next Thursday to really decide what to do. By that time, he may have spoken to Judge Chutkin. We'll know on Monday whether Donald Trump is taking the appeal to the Supreme Court. We'll know whether Roberts does a temporary administrative stay of the case on the D.C. Court of Appeals uh, issue um, pending a full result, or he just rejects it. If he just rejects it, and that's the data point that Judge Marshawn has, he may have already picked up the phone and spoken to Judge Chutkin, and we'll have to see how they've arranged the two trials that you've just talked about. Who is going to go first? And we'll know more Thursday. And that's also the day, just to anticipate next week's show, that's also the day that Judge McAfee, if he holds his evidentiary hearing on whether to remove Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade as prosecutors and or dismiss the indictment, he's going to hold it on Thursday. Everybody remember to check out Michael Popak's interview with Judge Ludig. Uh, tomorrow morning, so Sunday morning uh, at uh, 1 Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, right here on the Midas Touch YouTube channel. We'll also put the audio on the podcast feed later on Sunday or perhaps even Monday, but it'll drop on the podcast feed as well. I know you'll all enjoy uh, greatly that very thorough interview. Make sure you subscribe to the Midas Touch newsletter, MidasTouch.com slash newsletter. It's free to subscribe to the Midas Touch newsletter. And uh, also make sure you subscribe to the YouTube channel. Let's try to get to 3 million subscribers here on the YouTube channel. Hey there, welcome back. This plane. Game of Sheriffs flying overhead. Right around, I'm just 
sitting here in one place. If you want to know everything I'm doing, just listen to my podcast. We just did a show about P. Diddy. Charlie Hill. Pilgrim. Columbus discovered America. They taught me that when I was a kid. Columbus discovered Indians, you know. Uh, that was my education. Uh, you see, like, black people, Indians were driven to all-white schools, you see. Except the black people got the buses, the Indians were just driven. Uh, I went to Custer Memorial Junior High, you know, and, uh, You know, a lot of things I couldn't relate to, you know, like the pilgrims. They weren't my forefathers, you know. Yes. Pilgrims came to this land 400 years ago as illegal aliens. You know, <laughs> you know we used to call them whitebacks. <laughs> you know, they started unloading the boats, building houses, you know, East Coast. First thing we asked, uh, you guys going to stay tonight? Columbus discovered America. They taught me that when I was a kid. Columbus discovered Indians, you know. Uh, that was my education. Uh, you see, like, black people, Indians were driven to all-white school. Nothing has been done to redress the balance, which explains... Do you know what the top five regrets are of people that are on their deathbed? I've always wondered that. So different nurses... Rocky, what... Do you know what the top five regrets are of people that are on their deathbed? I've always wondered that. So different nurses and hospice workers have spent years talking to patients that are on their deathbed. And they asked them what their biggest regrets were in life. And there was five common answers within all of them. So the fifth one is, I wish I let myself be happier. Because they said they feared the chance of change. And they didn't realize being happy is actually a choice. And it can't be bought with money and the fourth one is i wish i stayed in touch with my friends because they said they got so caught up in work and other things that they forgot about the people that cared for them the most and the third one was i wish i had the courage to express my feelings because in their life they said they suppressed their feelings and because of that they never truly became who they wanted to be and the second one is i wish i hadn't worked so hard and took life so seriously because they said they missed watching their kids grow up or spending quality time with their family because they worked so much and lastly the number one regret was i wish i had the courage to live a life true to myself not the life others expected of me because they said they lived a life not chasing their own dream but chasing their parents dreams that they had for them you know what the top five regrets are of people that are on their deathbed Rocky was a compilation of really great actors almost born to play those parts and I couldn't fill that spot because it required incredible athleticism brains spirit talent speed he had it all I mean, he had it all, but the best thing is, the first day he came in to read actually was at night, and we were at Wits End because we couldn't find anyone. They had taken him off a Piper Cup going to Oakland because he lived in Oakland. And he was at that time still playing for Oakland Raiders as a linebacker. So, you know, he's fit. He comes in, he goes, oh, God, this better be good. And, like, he was in a bad mood. Yeah, yeah. And I'm going, perfect. Check that. Bad mood. (laughs) I like it. Big voice so far coming at me. Yeah. Then... We read, and he's going, oh, my God. If you could get me a real actor, I could perform. <laughs> that loser, that's Rocky. Rocky was a compilation of really great actors, almost born to play those parts. And I couldn't fill that spot because it required incredible athleticism, brains, spirit, talent, speed. He had it all. 
I mean, he had it all. But the best thing is, the first day he came in to read, actually was at night, and we were at Wits End because we couldn't find anyone. They had taken him off a Piper Cup going to Oakland because he lived in Oakland. And he was at that time still playing for Oakland Raiders as a linebacker. So, you know, he's fit. He comes in, he goes, oh, God, this better be good. And, like, he was in a bad mood. Yeah, yeah. And I'm going, perfect. Check that. Bad mood. I like it. I'll only date a guy if he makes six figures. No, seven figures. Because of inflation. Oh, because of inflammation. Yeah, and he has to be over six feet tall. Needs to be okay with me having an OnlyFans. This stupid This stupid I am not. I am smarter than the hot 18-year-old. I, I spent my most valuable years allowing my body to be used because no one ever told me what love is or how to respect myself. And all you can do is make fun of me for it. You sus there is a comment by the creators. I think people are like missing the point. This is the Freedom Tunes creator's comment that he commented under someone else. We live in a world where stupid people profit off of other stupid people by pointing out that they're stupid. When I was first listening to like the Red Pill stuff and Andrew Tate, and then hearing Sneeko like argue about this shit, it was a wild thing. Because I'm like, this is a child's idea of what it means to be a man. Like, it's good that we shame women and not men, because you have to be an alpha chad to get laid. It's like, dude, I don't care if you're capable of having sex. If you haven't subjugated your passions to reason, you're weak. I'll only date a guy if he makes six figures. No, seven figures. Because of inflation. Yeah. Because of inflammation. Yeah. And he has to be over six feet tall. Needs to be okay with me having an OnlyFans. This stupid This stupid I am not. I am smarter than the hot 18-year-old. I, I spent my most valuable years allowing my body to be used because no one ever told me what love it. This with technology, we can really do a lot of flying now in it. And so I had to create a whole training program for the pilots. We had to develop the cameras for, to be able to fly in the F-18s. I went and talked to the Defense Department and the head of the Navy, and they, they gave us permission to fly in the aircraft. It was... It's really very interesting because I not only had to kind of create a program for the actors to understand and become pilots, but also had to teach them about editing and lighting and the fighter pilots to teach them about filming. It was just like creating these cameras, creating, you know, and really put the audience in a, in a position where they feel like they're the fighter pilots. It's, it's very intense. This one, technology, we can really do a lot of flying now in it. And so I had to create a whole training program for the pilots. We had to develop the... sitting underneath his beautiful Corvette that he talks so much about in a very flimsy garage with one of those very cheap garage doors. You know, you can cut it open with a scissor. Does anybody have a scissor? I want to get some classified documents. Let's cut it open. Also sitting underneath his beautiful Corvette that he Billy talks so Ranch, much about Supreme in a very Ranch. flimsy... Hey, Tony. Fuck him. Flimsy garage with one of... I want this to be clean, okay? No butt sniff. Oh, 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 
Okay, let's uh let's go to Gaia. What about um what do you guys want to learn about? Been really into Antarctica lately. Pyramids and time displacements. Mm, ignite the Akashic Field. Mystery Teachings of the Tarot. Teresa Ballard. Eh. Smart Meditation. No, thank you. Hmm. Neil and Gaia, the Venusians, Oppenheimer, and Einstein. Did Albert Einstein and Robert Oppenheimer write a letter to President Truman about ETs? World War II history and the bombing of Hiroshima that few people know. Robert Oppenheimer, the lead developer of the atomic bomb, had regrets at what he had participated in, and that's common knowledge. But what we didn't know is that he and Albert Einstein reached out to then-President Truman, suggesting that the bomb brought on heavy ET surveillance of Earth with a possibility for colonization. Oh, this I is not so. well known. This should be very well known. It should be in history books, but it's not. Welcome back, Paula. Well, it's good to be here, and it's certainly good to have this discussion because I think it's very appropriate, especially since the film Oppenheimer came out, yes. which kind of dovetails with uh, Jacques Vallée in my book, Trinity, because we had spent a lot of time in, in New Mexico, and, and the, the shadow of Oppenheimer is there every time we walked into the Owl Barn Cafe and then the houses they used um, were right behind the Owl Barn Cafe. And so if, if you just imagine the planning during this, I think this is history. Oh, it's huge. It's a huge part of history. And also because it's two such renowned and highly respected scientists who had very, very high clearance talking because they had clearance they knew about our participation and the the visitations from ets and craft and even back engineer technology yeah. to an extent so they're commenting on this in a way pleading with the president to take into consideration we have to find a global way to start interfacing with these visiting et civilizations and we're going to get to the actual letter itself in a bit but first let's set the stage so here let's talk about oppenheimer when they were developing the bomb when they were out there near Trinity at the Al 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 Bar Al Bar and it's Cafe. still there. Yeah. And it's still there. It's it's been built up, but um the people that own it are this still the same people. For us investigative journalists, it's easy to go and talk to the owner uh and say, Do you remember those guys that came in here? And she'd say she said to me she said, well, we thought they were traveling salesmen because they had these briefcases. They had briefcases, <laughs> and that's what traveling salesmen had. And that, that bar is located at the, uh, you know, the juncture of the Pan American Highway, which was very, very traveled. And it's like just one street 
uh, in San Antonio. In fact, they were some of the top physicists, uh, nuclear physicists and scientists in the world gathering out in the desert, preparing for this, quote, test, which we'll talk about in a moment. And when you wrote the book Trinity, you interviewed some of the people who were alive in the day, the young boys that had um, had witnessed and actually interfaced with some of the stuff on board, a craft that visited the area after the Trinity explosion. One month after, yeah. And which is very, the timing on all of this, this letter and everything, is extremely important because it was very clear that our uh, entrance into the atomic age was of dire concern for many ET species throughout the universe. Well, it would be. It's just logical. I mean, yeah. well, here we are, this civilization that is, uh, you know, seems to be uh, non-threatening, and then all at once what we do and 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 we made it clear in fact Jacques made it clear that was not a test that was an actual bomb yeah that wasn't a test that was no test, test about that, it. How, there's no testing that and and uh, they learned from that too though that if you uh, did explode it from the air it did less damage than the ground so you can imagine that the fallout was 150 mile radius and the actual Trinity site that we covered is 13 miles away from ground zero. Right. So, and and the actual uh, Albarn Cafe is four miles away. So you think that Oppenheimer wouldn't know if he's, you know, lodging there. They also told me that was the only like place they could buy groceries and uh, the only place in town, the only watering hole in town. And in those days they had, um, I don't know if people remember, but they had soda fountains. Yes, uh, and and so the, the young guys that were part of the Trinity uh, or the Manhattan Project would go in there to see the girls because that's the only place you met somebody in the 1940s and 50s. Over so, a repair oh, float oh, or right, something. Exactly. Yeah. That's why they left it uncovered when the boys, you know, were there to go see the girls to, at the Al Bar and Cafe. And the, the little kids told told me that they hung out there because that was where all the action was at the soda fountain. The, oh, now, these are people who are now old men. Oh, when they yeah. were little kids, oh, they, they were hanging out, out there. there. They were there, They were uh, nine and seven, and they were hanging out there. And uh, now they're in, you know, in their 80s and one is deceased. But it, when you do a story like this, and I already knew about this um, this letter because I had, I'd looked at it at least 10 years ago, and I'm friends with Bob and Ryan Wood. Because I had asked them, I said, this letter is extraordinary. Is it real? Because it's part of the MJ-12 documents. But you did more work on it. Uh, well, I mean, I just followed up. You, you're the one that gave me the, you know, the push on it. You gave me the letter, a copy of it. So I just followed up with Bob Wood. And I said, where did you get this information? So he told me what his source was, who was, it, their father was highly entrenched at a high level in the government at that time. So he was able to... I don't know how he was able to take a, co a copy of it, but he did, right? Because they made everything in carbon copies. The carbon, you know, yeah. yeah, not only that, yeah. that's typewritten. So it was so. Timothy Cooper was the man yeah. that gave Bob Wood. To explain who Bob Wood is so everyone understands and has some context. Well, Bob Wood worked for McDonnell Douglas, and, and I love the man. He's in his 90s now, but he's such a, a treasure trove of real history because 
he and Ryan not only worked with the MJ-12 documents, they did so much re UFO research. Yes. So He's famous know, in the field. He's famous. And he's, he's a worked, credible player. And oh, he is. Mm -hmm. Well, he worked for, you know, he's a scientist. Yeah. He worked yeah. for McDonnell Douglas. And the, and the thing is that, that um, with Bob, they were able to put together the history of this. Because yes. this is not 2023, just the government, you know, re you know uh, releasing what it, I mean, we're going back to 1945 here. Yeah, this so is serious stuff. If, if, if you if you do your homework, you realize that these these documents are going around. That with the Freedom of Information Act, we have even more documents. Mm -hmm. And I have, of course, I have a um, my own archive, right? You know, and, uh, my own archive of documents. And I always kid around, but I have 300 books, and I've read all my colleagues' work. Otherwise, how could I put this together? One of the things I saw in that document right off the bat was the way it was written. This is really, we'll get to this in just a moment. So we're setting the stage here. So first of all, we've had the quote test, in other words, the bombing the at bombing. Trinity, which had huge fallout and health consequences mm -hmm. for little Remy, Bacchus, and, and the other people that were living there. The native population wasn't even warned. And here you have, I mean, the ignorance, it was ignorance. They just didn't know in the day. When you see the film Oppenheimer, which was so beautifully done, and they're getting ready for the blast, people are putting, like, grease paint on their face and sitting in lawn chairs <laughs> waiting to watch this detonation. They didn't know. They didn't know, but what was very bad, and I think there's a lawsuit or something around it, is that um, the repercussions were terrible. You cancers, know, cancers, blown out eardrums, yeah, eyesight, blindness. Fact, uh, Jose uh, Padilla's mother at, at five o'clock in the morning is packing lunch for his father. Is going to work and she opens the door and she says it was like the light of a thousand sights. Right. right. I can imagine the sun being a thousand times more. But the, she was blinded in one eye. Right. And, and but result, they didn't warn any of the native no, population that couldn't. this was going to happen. Well, they couldn't. I, I don't know how you work around this. I, I was looking at all the, the ways they could have done it. But, uh, no, later on they all gathered and they said that they had blown Stay up. Stay indoors and under your covers. Don't look outside anything. They said they blew up an ammunition dump. That was the official. Yeah. The official official well it there. had repercussions and it was filmed and it was also photographed and we're going to get to a very unusual photograph in a little bit because it's all tying back to the same subject this this development in humanity using this technology it did bring great surveillance and great concern that exists to this day we've had intervention through the years it appears uh, from ets we're going to talk about one of them in a little bit to stop us from ever conducting this kind of experiment on Earth again because of the damaging effects not only to Earth, but even to the other dimensions surrounding other Earth dimensions, that ripple exactly. out into the domain of other planets. Yeah, we don't think about that. You know, if people do their, their history homework on this, the whole Space Brother movement, all the messages from the so-called Venusians and all the messages were stop the nuclear, stop the nuclear, you're going to destroy yourselves. It was mainly nuclear. Today we have like climate change and other right. things. Right. But in those days it was about you people have opened a Pandora's box. So would you please, you know, make that the one and only. Right. But the problem with, with that is then you have an arms race and then we're playing a chess game and the only way that you can win is stalemate. 
sadly, uh, because of the yeah. ego structure of human There's beings. There's no way of winning no. uh, nuclear uh, no. war against each other. I mean, you can checkmate. I mean, you can checkmate. I have them. You have them. I have Which many is where we've been for 70 just, years. And, and, and if today, in 2023, we need to look at what this means. We do. So the blast happened. Then we did it for real. Okay, the atomic bomb over Hiroshima, hydrogen bomb over Nagasaki, competing forces in the world of science wanting to show their prowess. You know, great awards were given. But behind the scenes, Oppenheimer, there's that very famous clip from him that states that he has become a destroyer. I am I am become the destroyer, right? From the, from the Bhagavad of worlds. From the Bhagavad Gita. It was a quote from the uh, excerpt from the Bhagavad Gita. Right. But nonetheless, that's how he felt inside his own soul on this. But the part extending from that now, what happens in the interim from the time of Hiroshima and Nagasaki until the time they issue this letter to Truman? So we're talking about August 6th, August of 1945 to June of 1947. What happens in the interim regarding visitations on Earth, etc.? Well, first of all, at that time, and I have to talk about Trinity in this, they they didn't, uh, I'm guessing they brought the, uh, the craft to Los Alamos, and since there is no Blue Book and there's no Air Force and Army separately, because they joined later on, it's the Army Air Force to clean that up, um, they weren't sure what they had. And then you get Kenneth Arnold, who's in 1947. That gets even trickier because he's the one that coined the, the, uh, the phrase um, flying saucer. And then you have Roswell in July of 1947. So 1947 has become the year that supposedly marks the beginning of the UFO era. But also the intelligence era. There was an intelligence gathering operation that changed names from one thing to another at that time. Mm -hmm. What was it again? You mean the CIA? Yeah, yeah, the CIA? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah Colonel Corso talked right. about that in his books, the intelligence. A lot of the uh, intelligence gathering yeah. really was centered around what happened as a result of the atomic explosions. Oh, absolutely. And E.T. Visitations. visitations. Well, you know, the ET visitations, I mean, that's not, it, it doesn't, you know, take a rocket scientist to figure out that if we are being visited, we have caused attention in the, in the universe. And then if you start following the UFOs over nuclear facilities and look at the Maelstrom Air Force Base 1969 event, and it was two events, Oscar and Echo event, mm -hmm. where they shut down the missiles one by one by one, then, then somebody is interested in the, Someone is interested in our ability to destroy ourselves. Um, and I'm not going to make comments around that because some people look at that as an act of war and some people look at that as an act of peace. So I see it as an act of peace. If we're not smart enough to disinvolve ourselves with that, at least someone is. So I don't mind a little helping hand if it's <laughs> going to keep us from blowing each other up. Well, personally, agree. I'm okay with I that. Agree, but see, but let's talk about Maelstrom for a moment for people that don't know about yeah. that event. And uh, Robert Solis talks about this a great deal. Let's talk about what happened that day because it scared the poo out of everybody. In Montana, um, you know, I interviewed Robert Solis. He basically said he was in a bunker under the um the facility and there were 10 missiles pointed and we were point it was a cold war so we're pointing right. missiles at russia and russia is pointing missiles at us 
uh, and you hope there's no mistakes. So, uh, you know, all at once, this big red fireball came across the uh, the area, and he said everybody that was on the surface, all the, you know, the uh, military guys that were on the surface with the rifles there, just freaked themselves out because they it was over the, the missile silos, the nuclear missile silos. Yeah, so it's big yes. things hovering there. And so, everyone's scared. And then, and then it went, and then everything went down one, you know, one at a time. Each missile was shut down. Down one at a time. And then within a week, they were back up. So you, this is why it's not an act of war. If they want to, they would have destroyed the missiles. However, what was interesting, I've asked Robert in the later years, I said, did you get any message? And he said, in my head, they said, we can shut you down. Mm -hmm. I said, you heard that in your head? And he said, yes. And he said, and of course, Robert did a lot of disclosure. This is what, you know, I don't understand. He did a lot of disclosure. And it was very, very interesting because uh, he did, he was at the citizen hearing and talked about yes, this. He was in Washington. Yeah. He was at the original disclosure yeah, in D.C. So we've had disclosure. That's, that happened a long time ago. It happened a while ago. Yeah. Uh, you know, in the 2000s. I mean, that was real. That wasn't, you know, just... A, a simple thing so looking at this and then the fact that they activated the codes in russia and that must have been scary yeah uh, and they have also appeared uh over nuclear facilities yes uh, i interviewed jean charles dubuc who's a french pilot with air france uh in europe i interviewed him and he told me that in his air france airplane that all the people saw the ufo and i said where was it and he said it was over a nuclear facility yes. because i mean i don't think it's just hanging out yeah and so if you start doing where a lot of these sites even stephenville there's a nuclear facility in yes. texas yes so if you start putting together connecting the dots you see they hang out around nuclear facilities so, so they, and and yeah. military bases where development's going on right so i mean what's what's surprising about this yeah there shouldn't be anything surprising about it, except for people who still think some we're the only intelligent quote intelligent species in the universe. I, I don't think we need to argue that one too much. But so the point being that they have come and there have been also stories that there were some kind kind of errant shots fired across the bow that were essentially neutralized, and then we have that. Uh, one out of Air, uh, Vandenberg Air Force Base that shot right. to the moon, and that was captured on film. Right. I've seen the film. I saw that originally at Disclosure. You know, Robert Hastings did a lot on that. He did, but wasn't that film the one that was actually used in Project Blue Book on the History Channel in the fi slightly fictionalized version of all this? They showed that. I think that was the original well, film. Well, there is. There, the original yeah. film is out there. Yeah. And and the thing is that there again, it's a new interpretation. So the military are looking at it as hostile. And, and I'm saying, yay, good for you. <laughs> they had a warhead on it. They're trying to shoot a warhead to the moon. Oh, yeah. Well, that's hostile. No, uh, that's hostile. That's us. No, that's us. And then Project Horizon in the day after Roswell, Colonel Corso talks about the testing of an atom bomb on the moon. I'm going, are, are we crazy? <laughs> so what happened was, I think it was either 14 or 16,000 miles an hour. They could see after they shot this off and everybody's at Command Central watching, and it's like, what what and some object comes up keeping pace with the missile which was at that speed by then and it shows it going around it boom 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 gone neutralized it never made its destination to the moon but you know one of the things that i wonder about is 
th these are obvious messages, mm -hmm. which you know. Okay, so, and and we're not listening, obviously, because look where we are today. Are they ever going to let one go through just to teach us a lesson? You know, I'm wondering about this just on a personal level because it, we're talking about some of the cases, but there's a lot more that, that we are not talking about here of warnings about what we're doing. This stuff is serious, and I want to bring it back to you. I mean, we will eventually get to what they, what Einstein and Oppenheimer wrote here, but there was this was this was really scary stuff. You were in Rome. Okay, this is, I'm referring to the, what was he? Giandronique. Giandronique. I oh, didn't know how to pronounce okay. his name. What happened with you oh, regarding yeah. documents on the H-bomb? Okay, the H -bomb. tell us well, what well, happened to you. First of all, if you remember Oppenheimer for the people, Teller was arguing with Oppenheimer that the bomb wasn't strong enough, so he was going to go off and do the H-bomb, yeah. the thermonuclear bomb. Yeah. And so what happened is when I happened to be in Italy, and I would live there from 94 to 2007, I saw one of the witnesses at our local UFO meeting, Giandronique, who was on the island of Fangatofa in the Pacific. He was on the island of Fangatofa, and he was part of H-bomb tests, which are much more powerful than the atomic bomb. And this stuff's being shot off on these tiny islands and in the ocean. And the ocean. Our oceans. Our oceans. And he came, he was testifying, and he's very brave, uh, that he... Um, was present on two occasions because he said France did 800 H-bomb tests in the Pacific. And I'm going, that's just France. How many did we do? And India, I know, did a few. And and he said there were three uh, feet of dead fish on the runway each, every time they do it. And they would and they killed coral until Greenpeace came along with their boats and stopped, you know, and protested that. He said on two occasions, UFOs flew over the runways three green um, balls of light. He said he jumped on an airplane with the other military people. They followed them and all the uh, equipment on the airplane froze and they were afraid for a minute, but when the UFOs went over the horizon, they regained their power and were able to land. Now, if these UFOs that are flying over the H-bomb testing are giving us a message and they're not shooting us, and saying, what are you doing to your oceans? And what are you, are you people crazy? Then people need to look at that because he protested. He came out because he had a daughter that was deformed and he had a lawsuit. Mm -hmm. And so I got him to come to my house and I said, Guy, you need to tell the world this is H-bomb and, and you were present and UFOs flew over and they didn't do anything. On two occasions, you saw them. And you're having some damage to DNA in the your family absolutely yeah, that's yeah. why he was angry yeah, that's yeah. why he was angry so what happened was while i was filming him and i was a little nervous at the time so i called a friend of mine who worked for customs agents and in, in um in italy and he came to you know he was like my mulder and i was like the scully <laughs> and then we finished the taping and then we went to uh, have pizza in a restaurant with his wife with his wife we came back they had gone home I saw the door of my apartment open, mm. uh, and uh, of course the, the the guy Antonello that worked with me had a gun because he he was a policeman for the customs, and he pulled out the gun. And he says, "There's somebody in your apartment," and I thought, "If he's going to shoot somebody, let me knock on all the doors because we're not just, you know." 
doing it, you know, at random, my door is open. And I knocked on the doors and said, look, uh, you know, I've been broken into. Please be witness to what happens. They had jumped over the balconies in my apartment. I was oh. on the seventh floor. That's how yeah. they got in. They left the door open, but they took the film footage. They took his computer my computer at all i have three digital cameras at the time but they also bought took my mother's fur coat jewelry and so forth it was twenty thousand euro worth of material that they stole and somebody didn't want us to talk film that us. and 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 this is in rome and talk about it because if you really sit down and look at this, this is darn serious. Was there another instance too, as I recall, where you had there was a, some kind of blast in front of your apartment? Oh, when I was doing the Michael Wolf case, I had two Michael. car bombs go off in right. front of my apartment on two separate occasions, and he worked. Uh, the Michael Wolf case is extremely interesting. He was a remote viewer with a stubblebine group. Had done the Achille Loro case and a lot of the of the uh, Red Brigade cases. He had remote viewed. And I had been one of the only journalists that covered that case. But evidently, when you're doing something that um, disrupts the status quo, especially with intelligence people, Michael had worked for for the CIA and, and had been an agent. And when you're working with this, and it was very important for me to go to the source, like a Guillain-Dronique that worked with H-Bomb. Right. But I didn't realize, I think I didn't realize until I saw the movie Oppenheimer that the mentality here is, yeah, we made an A-bomb, well, let's make something stronger. Yeah. yeah. So now where are we that today? Competition. Yeah, but where are we today? What's stronger than the H-bomb? Like, are, is this thinking still on Earth? You know, there's the H-bomb, like, what else are well, we doing? Well, people in certain countries still threaten to go nuclear I mean, this seems, this is such a worn out old story that should have been put to rest the day of the original blast in 1945. We should have never, ever considered this technology again. But you still have all of these silos, all of these capabilities. Absolutely. Drones can drop them for heaven's sakes, you know. Yeah, it's, it's, we actually what I call shot ourselves in the foot because there's no getting off this. I mean, if people start, if everybody's having a competition for nuclear yeah. or, or other exotic weapons, then, then how do we get off this, this, this race, this arms race or whatever. But the thinking of the scientists in that film, the sitting down and dialoguing yeah. that they did really interested me because I had covered. Me too. Yeah. I had covered the, uh. You know, the Oppenheimer, and, and, and Einstein was in the film, too. Uh, he, he was quite quite prominent as an advisor and friend to Oppenheimer. Absolutely, at Princeton. Yes. You have to remember. And so what, what, what secret stuff is going on that's dangerous? And don't we look at the, the repercussions? I don't think Oppenheimer was really happy that it, it was tested on, and it wasn't tested, on two cities. He, he thought one would have been enough. Mm -hmm. I mean, this kind of thinking is crazy. Yeah. So, they, he and, he and Albert were concerned. Mm -hmm. And so here we are. Now, this is about a, roughly a month before Roswell. Okay? And you've done a tremendous amount of research. You did a companion to Day After Roswell, the Philip Corso's book, right? Lieutenant yeah, Colonel actually, it was, it was his original manuscript. It's called The Dawning of a New Age. The Dawning of a New Age, yeah. 
the the day after Roswell is co-written. It's got a co-author, and right. and and so uh, when he came to Italy, Corso wanted the original manuscript uh, that we would print, and and people can have access to that. Yes, and and that's that. I highly recommend that people read both of those books. I found them both fascinating, in terms of what kind of technology was seeded at least in America. We also had Germany and other places around the planet where this technology was seeded through crashes. So here it is a month before the Roswell crash, but well after the events of World War II. And so this letter is written, it says top secret across the top. Uh, the name of the document is called Relationships with Inhabitants of celestial bodies they call them celestial and you go through and they set up why they're writing the letter but one there there's much in this that's fascinating can people find it on your site where do they find it? do they have to go to no, MG bob, 12, Wood? bob uh, MG 12. ryan Wood's site has it but yes. if they want to email me I'll, I'll be glad to give it to them because i think it it puts it in a context of history and they and the fact that it's written in july before roswell I mean, in June, June, in June before Roswell means what it means is there were other crashes before that. Yeah, and, and you're and, aware of and those. And they're you're having a problem, them. and they're having a problem trying to decide what to do. So this is their, this was one of the suggestions. Another possibility, they've gone through some possibilities. Um, if peaceful cooperation isn't an issue, another possibility may exist that a species of Homo sapiens might have established themselves as an independent nation on another celestial body in our solar system and evolved culturally independently from ours. Obviously, this possibility depends on many circumstances whose conditions cannot yet be foreseen. However, we can make a study on the basis of which such a thing might have occurred. So looking at some evolved humans from elsewhere that come back here and, say, and are concerned. Do this. Don't yeah. do this. Don't do this. Yes. What are you people doing? It's going to get worse. <laughs> yes. And, okay, now we continue down page two a little further. And the top of this part says, now we come to the problem of uh, determining what to do if the inhabitants of celestial bodies or extraterrestrial biological entities desire to settle here. Okay. <laughs> Okay. That's a problem. <laughs> yeah, and they're saying, hey, we brought this on ourselves. We drew this attention to right. ourselves by creating this destructive, reckless technology. Right. Now we're having to live with it, so let's make a plan. Here it says, a superior form of colonizing will have to be conceived that could be a kind of tutelage, possibly through the tacit approval of the United Nations. Nations. Right? Yeah. But would be the but would be the United Nations but would the United Nations legally have the right of allowing such tutelage over us in such a fashion? So here they're talking about overt colonization of wiser species and how do we welcome them, learn from them, and live alongside them till we can get our you know what together oh yeah these are two scientists remember that that this is oppenheimer and einstein, einstein yeah writing to president yeah, truman these are two scientists who are using logic thank god and they're saying okay well we gotta deal with this and then part of that also says we have to create another united nations called the supra yes yeah, a, a supra united nations i'm looking at the united nations today and I'm looking how at they would handle uh, this. How, they handle, <laughs> how do they handle what's happening right now? Yeah. 
Not and then well. we're and then we're going to have ETs coming down, and then they have to handle that too, and and, and there is no structure, or a way of dealing with this that i mean you could create our supra united nations but we don't have the maturity to even choose the players and not only that we just had like disclosure with the new york times it just came out that this is real otherwise it's all been science fiction up until now right so this so here we have these so they're really truly earnestly thinking they have enough clout enough position that it will make it before president truman so what happens then well, they, they're very logical about delineating all the problems. And they said this came, they actually say this came out of our testing of the atomic bomb. Yes, they were very they're, clear they, about they're, it. They're very, they're very clear that they were being surveilled. Yes. And there are other photos. And they had clearance. There. They knew this. Yeah. And they had, and, and they have other photos. Regina, there's photos out there uh, of each, of uh, ships over that area mm -hmm. right around this time, apart from the one that we're, we're going to show. But, um, this this was concerning them because they were looking at it as um, inclusive, and yes. I and it's the same problem we have today with the congressional hearings because they're they're looking at how are they looking at it as national security issue? Do we have to develop exotic weapons to go That's after them? More money, more or all that stuff. Yeah. So the problem that we're having today with the discussions are relate to the problem that Einstein and Oppenheimer are talking about in this letter in 1947. Let's go to the photo you just mentioned, because I meant to go to it a little bit ago. This is very interesting. Who was this photo? Who, who took this series of photos? Because I understand there were several cameras. Right. And Seven this cameras. only came up on one, one of the cameras. Right. And it, it, first of all, it's a very different kind of photography that's almost photographing in nanoseconds. Exactly. And that's why they brought it in for yeah. this blast to see second, well, nanosecond by nanosecond, how it was building. And so I don't know how many frames this was in, but you see here on the lower left, there is this kind of, it looks like, Bell Rock. It looks like Bell Rock in Sedona, actually. It's a Bell craft. It's, it's a, a Bell it's craft. It's very much like the Adamski craft. Uh, you know, with the that was visiting regularly speaking about in 1953. This. Yes, because yeah, that was when he was, you know, uh, cautioned by Orthon to stop the nuclear mm -hmm. and to be an ambassador and go to the kings and queens and everybody and say, Stop this. But this looks like the Adamski craft, uh, the Bell craft, mm -hmm. uh, and it's just sitting there and watching the, the, the atomic blast, the atomic blast, which is the little part on the bottom, but yeah. all of the repercussions or what happened in the atmosphere is that big circle so yeah, it was just shock it's huge. It's shocking yeah, interesting it's huge. I, I have another document that tells about the name of that kind of camera which i don't have on me right now but people can um, it's a real camera it's a real photo and it comes out of europe and right and it, it came to the offices, uh, and I know who sent it to, because I know the researchers in Europe mm -hmm. that found it. Mm -hmm. um, and they did incredible research on the atomic, uh, maybe because of the movie or so forth. And it came out of the offices of Jaime Malsan when I was down there. And he said, you want to see this picture that came from these people that I know very well in Europe. He said it's one of seven cameras that were... On the and it's very obvious that it's it's a bell-shaped craft that's sitting there watching. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's not in any of the other. No, it's not in any of the other shots. Uh, shots. No, so it just was there. It, it blinked was there. in and blinked out. Right. right exactly. So it's just 
we're assuming we're making an assumption this is a, an example of exactly what we're talking about they're very concerned and they're watching this blast at trinity yes and i think whoever you know and they and there's a website around the, these cameras whoever was looking at this image must have had some kind of discussion apart from the the fact that there are other photos of UFOs over the blast that Einstein and Oppenheimer knew about. And yeah, they had that kind of clearance. They yeah, would know. They, they would know. I mean, of course they knew. They knew everything that happened in that area. And if, if Trinity happened, it happened one month later when uh, some in of the Manhattan, yeah, and, and it's like four miles away from the Al Barn Cafe. How could um, uh, Oppenheimer not know? Right. I mean, so we have this bit of evidence that's obscure and interesting. If people contact you, you can give them oh, yeah, the, the documents, the name yeah. of the photographer, and so forth. Yeah. So now we get back to this document that goes on and on. It's six pages right. of all these different scenarios about humanity ultimately is probably going to need to have relations with extraterrestrials in an open, collaborative way. Eventually. And we'll, eventually. Yes. And we would be the students. Well, that's the, the, how they phrased it. Yes. Yeah. And so here it says, myself and General Marshall have read this, and I must admit there is some logic, but I hardly think the president will consider it. For the obvious reasons, I understand Oppenheimer approached Marshall while they attended, it's hard to read, something at. As I understand it, Marshall rebuffed the idea of Oppenheimer discussing this with the president. It's signed okay. by Vandvar Bush. Uh, now, you can name? understand why. Now, think okay. about this. So what <laughs> follows, okay? So the next president we have, right, is, is Eisenhower. It's Eisenhower. And who is warning of the military-industrial complex. This is military. And military is saying, what a stupid idea. We need to stay in competition and keep developing our warring methods and technologies. And it's keeping the military-industrial complex going. Comments on that, because by rejecting this, no, who knows what, who yeah, knows what Truman would have said. But the point is, they didn't even let him see it. No, they didn't let them see it, but it's very hard for even the military, anybody wrap their mind around it. Right now, even with what we've got as, as disclosure, we're talking about Tic Tacs and we're talking about craft. Nobody has opened the door, except now, during the hearings, about what's inside or who's inside. It's easier for them to talk about the actual machinery and everything than what is inside and and whether it be you know an artificial intelligence a drone or some kind of uh you know being from another planet i mean it's all the above it's we don't touch that it's funny that oppenheimer and einstein they were philosophers that. though these men they had deeply philosophical they were scientists with deeply philosophical minds and were concerned with the philosophical implications for the future of humanity and so i mean it was very intelligently and thoughtfully written because this, these are these are the kind of people we need to be listening to <laughs> philosophers that can see the repercussions extension of our actions yeah they're they're physicists and scientists they're not military guys they're not military guys no. so now we go on truman's out uh, right? And right. Eisenhower's in. Now Eisenhower's on his way out saying, holy cow, people, beware of the military-industrial complex because they're running the whole show. But I also think uh, Eisenhower had a meeting at Holloman. I do. Okay, talk I, about yeah. this because I know. That, I know. I well, my book, Connecting the Dots, yes. has the exact um, 
uh, testimony of, of Kirkland, who was there. Uh, and he, he say where you have to create a frame around this. He was at Holloman Air Force Base. He was called in. He said that uh, that Eisenhower uh, evidently he disappeared, and they said he he had gone to a to dentist to take care of his teeth. But if you watch the the Ebenezer movie. Um, UFOs past, past, present, and future, Robert Menager said that, you know, this is a long story, that they were promised footage to do a disclosure documentary. But I've seen the, the documentary, um, and it, it, I saw it like when it had the title, It Has Begun. And in the documentary, there's Rod Serling with Jacques Vallée, Burgess Meredith, and they're talking about a hypothetical meeting of Eisenhower with these beings. But they have like an an eight second uh, piece of film that's real, that, that of of a craft coming down at Holloman, which is in New Mexico, and and was and, Eisenhower said to have been there at they, that yes. moment. And Kirkland told me he was there, uh, that they had been pulled in the cafeteria. Which, considering everything be going on, of course that would not be out of the question for other species to want to connect with the more powerful people in the world. So let's say let's say. Give him well, the benefit of the doubt. What if he had met with them? What was this speech that has become so famous about? Beware of the military-industrial complex. Well, you know, when you have a crash of any kind, you have technology, and you're not going to throw it in the trash. You're going to try to figure out how you can copy it, back-engineer it, and so forth. The after Roswell Corso's Yeah, well, I yeah. mean, it's logical. Yeah. Now, of course, it was Army, but Air Force started mm -hmm. way back before the Army, mm -hmm. and, and, we, and the Navy's in charge of UFOs. So the, the thing that we have is a very interesting uh, scenario where... And, and I have to follow Eisenhower, too, because Eisenhower wrote a letter to one of our contactees, Aradamski, and I have that letter. They gave it to me. His name was Genio Siracusa. He was on the island of Sicily. So when I was, I was, and he was Aradamski. The Italian Adamski. Yes, because he met with people from Venus who had the same Now, first we have to say, Adamski is said to have been taken by beings from Venus up in ships, shown a lot about the nature of how space travel works, the, the future, uh, what's happening on Earth, what we're evolving into. He was shown a great deal in their books written by Oh, Adamski. yeah, no, Adamski, uh, when he had his meeting with Orthon at, uh, you know, at Desert Center, he was with five people. And, and not only that, but now it's coming out that there's even a photograph of Orthon. There's a new book out. Right. So he was getting all of this from Venusians. Venusians, and so was... So your guy in Italy. was from Venusians. Yes. Now, whether they came from Venus or not, I'm not going to even go there. Right. But, but that's they, what they, they looked. They looked the same. Mm -hmm. The message was the same. And President Eisenhower wrote to Siracusa and said, and it's got his name, it's got his signature, and it said, um, Mrs. Eisenhower and I will try our best to try to... Um, uh, to try to, to work with this situation of peace. And I'm wondering, why would he write to an Italian contactee who doesn't even speak English, probably, who did the very same thing as Adamski? He went to all the leaders of Europe at that time mm -hmm. with the warnings. Mm -hmm. So in the 1950s, 1953 to 60s, we were warning the world of the dangers of nuclear 
uh, and whether it was Adamski, Menger, uh, you know, all the people at Giant Rock, that you know, the right. Giant Rock crew, Tower or it was, uh, you know, our guy in, in Sicily, somebody should be connecting dots here. I mean, you can't make this up. You're uh, connecting dots, Paola. <laughs> and then yeah. I want to say, you and I are both fans of the work that was coming out in the 50s and the 60s yes. from these contactee gentlemen. Yes. They were people that explained what was going on. It was done just like the films you see about people in the 50s. Everything was done. Even the bad guys were gentlemanly in these films. So this was a very gentlemanly type of contact in which they explained what was being shown to them regarding the health of the human body, for example. Menger, his book. Many things. Was it called From Earth to You? Uh, from to outer, space to outer space to you, and it was that they live yeah. longer than we do. And they explained why, yeah. and they talked about the best way to, to eat and so forth. And so there's a lot of different kind of information that was coming through the these 50s. contactees all through the 50s, and we're big fans of that. I find it much more intriguing than someone talking about a tic-tac, kind of darting <laughs> through space, and do we need to build more weapons? What are the real messages? And we're almost out of time, so tell us in your own mind, from having read all of it and writing the Connecting the Dots book, what do you think is the most important thing for us to focus on in this whole big mess called ufology? Well, all the interviews are in, in UFOs connecting the dots, uh, and, I've, and they're word-for-word -word interviews. The, the thing is that we're not independent. We are one. When Edgar Mitchell had his epiphany out in outer space, he looked at the Earth and he said, I want to tell the people in Congress and the people in the world there are no boundaries, so why are we killing each other over boundaries? So, And God bless Edgar Mitchell because... We are one human species. We have had contact. I've always wondered if they were going to be official about it, what country would they go to? And what I saw was they may not go from the top down. They may go to the regular uh, citizen of the planet. That's Which is what's species. happening. People yes. shooting all these different things with their cameras saying, exactly. wow, what the heck they're is gonna that? They're going to go from the bottom up yeah. for disclosure because they're going to go and talk to the average citizen that doesn't represent any ideology, any religion, any, any boundaries. Right. And that's where we have our problem today in 2023. We need to get back to we are one species if there is contact. We got to do it like Ike Oppenheimer and Einstein suggested, logically, logically, collaboratively, and peacefully. Exactly. Thank you, Paula. What is the t is it called? Connecting the dots. Is that connecting the, the dots? Making sense of the UFO phenomenon. Yes, because you're to me the most impressive boots on the ground UFO researcher out there. Period. I know a lot of guys have a lot of their name up there and bigger than yours, but, no, but you're the one for me. Work. So it's about the work it's and you do the work. the work. So thank you, Pella. No, thank you. <laughs> Again, to find out more about the ramp up to the dropping of the atomic bomb, you can read Paula's book, Trinity, and watch the film Oppenheimer and also read Connecting the Dots. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on Open Minds.
exploded the atomic bomb, it got the attention of a lot of cosmic cultures. Not only were there crashes and so forth, there were visitations. I had seen the Integratron, and then all I needed to do was start interviewing people from back in those days to find out that what I believed to be the real ETs were people. It wasn't about religion. It was about this is of highly kept secret and black projects that make money and as Colonel Corso told me, weapons of war. You mean you're telling me that in 1970, you guys saw space people coming off the ship? And he goes, yes. Back in more innocent times, the 1950s and 60s, there was a different type of contact that was taking place between extraterrestrials and human beings. Beautiful, well-dressed visitors approached men who were highly intelligent, but not necessarily academically oriented. In other words, open-minded. Their messages to humanity have stood the test of time, but we ignored them. So, welcome back, Paola. Well, it's wonderful to be here, especially to talk about this situation with you. Yeah, I just, uh, this is a topic I really love, and I was very grateful. I mean, you know, you and I, as everyone knows, have been through a lot of adventures together. We've done uh, quite a few kind of joint interviews. You introduced me to Paul Hellyer, who was mm -hmm. the former defense minister of Canada. You came to Italy I to see to the Italy Giants. We've done, we go back. We go back, but One yeah. of the things I really love and am very grateful for was you originally turning me on to the stories that happened in the 50s and 60s because it was kind of a sweet time of contact that turned into kind of a dirty affair with everyone competing with each other and calling each other liars and you know stealing stuff it, it became very undignified i have to say but back then there was some dignity to it so how did you first come across we're going to talk about howard menger and his book from outer space to you which i love Let's talk about that. How well, did you come about that? It's I call it back to the future because I, like all you people that had worked in ufology, and I am a journalist uh, rather than ufologist. I want to, you know, say that uh, I, I care about history. Right. I care about the history, and I've always looked at it in the timeline of history. And no, uh, history did not begin with 1947. It began even more because we know we've done the 1945 Trinity case. When the uh, world uh, exploded the atomic bomb, it got the attention of a lot of cosmic cultures. Not only were there, uh, you know, crashes and so forth, there were visitations. And if you if you look at the timeline of the 1950s and what was going on in Southern California, and California has been uh, like a, a pioneer in a lot of things. Then I had to go back and look at the uh, Space Brother Movement, what's called the Space Brother Movement. So I had been to Giant Rock. I had seen the location. I had seen the Integratron. And then all I needed to do was start interviewing people from back in those days to find out that what I believed to be the real ETs were people. And they came here uh, in the 1950s because we jump-started the New Age, what we call the New Age today, with Yogananda, with Maharishi, with the New Thinking. I mean, even Adamski, he would call his lectures the uh, the Temple of Tibet. Yes, anyway, right. you know, so. Right. Yeah, and you agreed with that. You thought Oh, it was... no, absolutely. And just to kind of further validate, when I had no interest in any of this, back in the... 
oh, mid-80s or so when I was talking with my own group, group of beings, um, a couple people had had experiences, and I asked them, well, are, are they really here? And they said, well, exactly what you said. They have a, an increased interest now that you have nuclear capabilities, and you'll often find them surfacing around military bases, and they're watching military activity all over the planet and have been exactly since we started playing with that. They said that will not be allowed to go out because we actually tried to shoot some uh, a nuclear weapon to the moon at one point. They Colonel Corso said he, it he, was taken down. I mean, yeah. literally, it was this Project Horizon was the testing film of nuclear. it is amazing. Yeah. The way that 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 spacecraft came in and took it out. So that's not going to be allowed. We're not allowed to pollute the rest of our cosmos. So they're very. That was the validation on that. The other one was Adamski. Mm -hmm. If you come at a five and saying, get out of yourself. You're Fuck in your head all the time. Enneagram. It's not a not great good. <laughs> it's not a good strategy. No. Laws of three, six, eight, and nine. I believe this comes from the Sufis, Enneagrams. It's kind of like personality types and uh, we we can kind of transition into different types when I say why why that I'm not it's human nature why why and I do it that way I say why why Come on, man. Ah. Just a Morgan. Thank you for. Thank you for. Three twenty-three K. Even if it's law enforcement. Through the Enneagram. Welcome back, Frank. It's so good to see you again. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. Why? Why? Da 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 Why? Why? By the way. Add to that exclamation point is a question mark and say, I have to do this this way. Well, don't I? In my previous conversation with Frank DeLuca, we gave an overview of the Enneagram and touched on some of the personality types and their dynamics. Today, Frank is back with us, and we're going to take a deeper dive into the potential of the Enneagram in all of our relationships. His new I think we should maybe find the first one. Um. What? What? Da -da -da. Enneagram in relationships. How can the Enneagram model help us understand and improve our relationships with others? Clinical psychologist Frank DeLuca, PhD, explores the research in recent book, A Field Guide to Human Imaging Relationships Through the Enneagram. This model provides a way for us. I really us. had to go back to zero and say, now, why would I talk about the Enneagram? I drank the Kool-Aid a long time ago, right. but not everybody has. If they had this language, yes. if they had this point of view, Oh, it would just be so much more fun. We have a kind of contracted self yes. and an expanded self. Very well put. They keep longing for that perfect other who will see <laughs> me in my depth. Yeah. 
I did not know the rude cashier's son was expelled from school yesterday. I did not know the careless driver who pulled in front of me just got word that his wife was in the ICU. I do know that erring on the side of kindness never hurt us all. I think all of us enjoy seeing ourselves and others through the lens of different assessment tools or archetypes. One such tool is the Enneagram, which I find to be very useful. Frank DeLuca began using the Enneagram decades ago for creating more positive relationship in his personal and work life. As the years went on, he began taking this knowledge and distilling it until he found the perfect essential you. His book, A Field Guide to Humans, Using the Enneagram to Improve Your Relationships, is this distillation replete with beautiful art and personal stories. And I have to tell you, Frank, I've been telling everyone you got to get a bunch of these as gifts for people because you did something different with this book than what I've seen before. Uh, Enneagram books are fun, but A, you've made it into an art piece, yeah. but even more importantly, you actually did take your, what, 30, 40 years of knowledge and distill each of the archetypes mm. so you can recognize yourself in this wonderful little book. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for noticing. <laughs> well, you put a lot of work into it. I Isn't did. it glad somebody noticed? Right, the exactly. publisher. <laughs> yeah, it's true. So with you, first of all, this is, uh, some people know about the Enneagram, some don't. I don't think I've done anything on the Enneagram for years. So first of all, let's talk about the history of the Enneagram a bit mm -hmm. itself. And then we're going to start going into your history with the Enneagram. Okay, sure. Uh, the Enneagram as a symbol uh, has, we don't know how long it's been around. Mm. Uh, some attribute it to uh, Pythagoras and sacred geometry. Uh, others think it kind of came in the Middle Ages with the confluence of mysticism, Christian mysticism, Judaic and Islamic. Uh, but we don't really know, we don't have facts about that symbol. What we do know is that in the 19, about 1915, 1920, a man, a teacher, a mystic, uh, Gurdjieff yes. presented this to his students, but he didn't talk about it in terms of personality. He talked about it in terms of the movement of the energy of life and that it's kind of a, I kind of look at it as a, um, a map of the cosmos mm -hmm. and you can read a lot into it. So he didn't teach the Enneagram of personality, but he talked about uh, chief features in each one and, and he taught actually through movement. Mm -hmm. and there were dances that went with the Enneagram. You move ahead to the late uh, 60s, mm -hmm. and uh, a Bolivian man in South America, another kind of mystic teacher, uh, began to teach in his teachings with the Enneagram. And he began to add personality called ego fixations on top of it. And he uh, used it as part of his program for spiritual development and enlightenment. In about, I think, 1970, mm -hmm. uh, a man named Claudio Naranjo, uh, was, he was from uh, South America, but he was working in the United States. He was a psychiatrist, and he was also very interested in personality systems and psychometrics, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of other things. He went to South America, kind of on a personal journey, and he spent time with Oscar Echazo, and he was introduced to the Enneagram as Oscar was working with it. When he came back to the United States, that's when things really began, I think, as far as our understanding of what we have as the Enneagram today. Uh, it's kind of like the Big Bang mm -hmm. of the Enneagram in that what came together was these kind of mystical teachings 
with his understanding of uh, modern psychology and personality systems. Mm -hmm. So he began to do the blending oh, of spirituality, mysticism, and psychology. And that's really what you were interested in yes. professionally. So now let's go to you and talk about yes. you professionally and how you intersected with it. So the, uh, it was like 1989, uh, things happened in strange ways, but mm -hmm. someone gave me a book called The Enneagram. Uh, it was by Helen Palmer. And I, this is interesting, but I didn't quite, couldn't quite absorb it. But shortly after that, I was on a retreat, a 10 day retreat, and the person who was running it had just done training in the Enneagram. And she had a colleague, who, and she said to the colleague, because I was going to work with this woman, would you please type Frank? And I didn't know what this was mm -hmm. about. And she came away saying, I think he's a type one. And my friend said, oh no. You know, that was the first response. Right. To <laughs> oh no. So, but what happened is that I began to study and I began, I made friends with this woman who was a trained teacher. And as I began my training in as a therapist right. and seeing clients, I would consult with her from the Enneagram point of view. What do you think this person might be? And I was doing consulting with companies and I would bring her in to help me understand these people mm -hmm. and they would work with her. So I was able to kind of watch and learn from her. And I just kept doing more study and more learning. Mm -hmm. And uh, in, I, it was, I had private practice as a therapist. Right. And as I sat there with people, I thought, oh, if they only knew this. Oh, yeah, yeah. It would speed things up just greatly. So you start blending it? So I said, well, I got a big, I'm going to have to teach this. Yeah. And um, I, I began to teach, I guess, in 2007, just to clients only certain clients who mm -hmm. I felt would be open to it. And that began to spread. But still, I was interested in family and friends knowing this truthfully because it would make my life easier is what I thought. Right. <laughs> <laughs> if they had this language, yes. if they had this point of view, oh, we could just, it would just be so much more fun. And truthfully, that's what I love about it the most. There's so much joy that comes I out agree. of not being locked in to these patterns. I agree, especially if you can come from the understanding Every one of us is making decisions and looking through a lens of life that is unique and different from the other. And we're making an assumption that someone kind of understands life through a similar lens as ourselves. That's not true at all. It's not. <laughs> all you have to do is get married and or whatever, and you'll find that out, you know? Yeah. Well, there's where it really shows up in relationships. Yes. You know? And we recognize that, oh, my God, you really have a whole different take on things, don't you? Yes. And, yes. And when we have see people with a different take, we assume there's something wrong with them. Right. Because don't you know this is the way it is? Right. And they say, no. That's know, not how I see it at that's all. That's not how I see it at all. Yeah. So it really is about perception. Uh, yes. You, you and I talked about that uh, this yeah. before, off camera, before we prepared for this. And we we're talking about how it allows a person to set up your relationships with others really based on compassion and understanding. Yes, that's one of the great gifts of these teachings. I don't know anything that has allowed me and people I know to develop our compassion. Mm -hmm. And I really emphasize in my book, kindness. Yes, you do. In fact, I've written something down here. Yeah, my book. <laughs> because I had to say, I mean, the Enneagram is one of the tools I have, but I've been studying things for the last 40 years and teaching, you know, kind of mm -hmm. from the human potential movement and mm -hmm. so forth. And when I wrote this book, 
I really had to go back to zero and say, now, why would I talk about the Enneagram? Right. Uh, I drank the Kool-Aid a long time ago, but right. not everybody has. So right. why the Enneagram? Why self-awareness? Right. What is this all about? And I kind of came to see that if we can't be kinder to one another, then does all of our consciousness work really matter? No, it doesn't. So if you don't mind yep. my reading um, this first page in the book, okay, it says, I did not know the rude cashier's son was expelled from school yesterday. I did not know the careless driver who pulled in front of me just got word that his wife was in the ICU. I did not know that my sarcastic remark had hurt my friend so deeply. I do know that I easily forget how tender we all are. I do know that erring on the side of kindness never hurt a soul. And that was beautiful. Yeah. Um, that was, I, I, yeah, I use poetry in the book, as you know. Yes. Because um, it, to describe types is one thing. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to find other ways, other channels in. So the artwork, the colors, yes, the poetry. Beautiful. Not all of us are, have linear minds that we use only. Right. And so uh, the poetry, and I'm aiming for the heart there. Right. Because you ta- asked about differences earlier. Right. And I've come to see we really can't resolve many differences mentally. Right. It can only really be resolved through the heart. Right. Where we become human. That is so with true. With another human. In fact, I even tried using the Enneagram with someone who's totally in the head. It, it, it didn't work at all because the same defensiveness and all that kind of remained that was there to begin with. Because if you can't drop just into the vulnerability of your heart and say, look, we're just different. Can we look at those differences and how they might work together? Mm-hmm. So you have to be brave enough and vulnerable enough to allow yourself to be that honest with yourself you and each it. other. Yes, it's not for the faint of heart. It's not because a lot of people don't want to know that there's a significant difference there that probably isn't going to be bridged, but that doesn't mean it's the end of the dialogue or the relationship. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean it's the end of it, but it's the elephant in the room that you just haven't been willing to talk about, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Well, it is, and, and what's great is that the Enneagram gives you a impersonal way to talk about something personal exactly that's what's so beautiful about it it. is it is so i agree with what you said in the very beginning and what we talked about off camera if there was every time in the world right now is the time where we need to start understanding each other better because we have such uh polarization um people are so siloed people are so defensive and judgmental and hurt right now at large and that's everything in the media is um reinforcing that yes so that's why when i read this book i thought yay this is this is so accessible and so pretty you know so the culmination (laughs) of the aesthetics and the usefulness is that's my sweet spot well that's what i was aiming for yeah the aesthetics you did something so i know this is gonna bore you to death however we're all looking for something of ourselves in here. Yes. And so if you would indulge me mm-hmm. and let's go through the types in the most mm-hmm. essential mm-hmm. truth. So each person can start seeing themselves in this story. So when we talk about pairings and such, yeah. they can kind of read themselves into the story a bit. Sure. So I'll do my best. You're a one. 
I am. Okay, so there you go. <laughs> You're admitting to it. Okay. Yes. So let's talk about the essence of the ones of the world because mm. there are nine types. So right. there are a lot of you. There are a lot of ones. Yes, there are. Not enough, probably. <laughs> <laughs> if you do say so. <laughs> well, oh, ones. You see, what I look to, what I like to look for is what's at the heart of the one, and then what happens, because each type has particular strength. And they do that over and over, use that strength, but that strength becomes overdone. Mm. The strength for a one is to have a basic sense of what's right and wrong, a highly moral development, a sense of how things should be in the world, mm -hmm. and, and a sense that we could all get along, and, and, and improvement is really essential to a one. Mm -hmm. Now, you can imagine living with a one, then. <laughs> yes, because everybody's got to improve, not just That's the right. one, everybody else. My partner, I tell him, look, there is a special place in heaven for partners of ones. Of ones. Because <laughs> <laughs> everything is constantly an improvement project. Yes. Myself to start. Right. So I can never quite match up to the expectation. Basically, ones have a sense of how things could be and should be, and there's how things are. And the gap creates resentment and irritation. Yes. So ones aren't, ones aren't openly angry, but they're kind of under the surface, like, irritated right. all the time. And so does that sense also become the downfall, the very thing that is their strength, which is to have this moral compass, right. this under this innate knowing of right and wrong, yeah. also can become very judgmental. We can be heavy-handed with it, I will admit. <laughs> <laughs> the okay. Inquisition, you know, it's like there's a sense of punish those. I mean, that's the extreme. What I have to say about each type is that people talk about levels of development. I kind of look at as a little more simple to say, we have a kind of contracted self yes. and an expanded self. Very well put. And so the contracted one is angry and wanted to punish people for doing things wrong, mostly in the mind. You don't right. have to always express it, but right. it's an inner it's there. dialogue. Yeah. It's there. The more expansive one is what can we do to bring better life to people? Mm -hmm. You know, and how can improve I be generous? And how can I prove? But how can I come from my heart mm -hmm. when I do it? And that's a big, I think, for every type. That's where it really begins to shift. And we're going to look at that in each type. Yeah. So where would a one best be placed in the world of, if you're offering your gifts to the world, whether it's through career or a family, volunteer friendship, where do they shine? Where are they best situated? We're really good teachers. <laughs> okay, I bet. Yeah. <laughs> we like to help people find the way. Yeah. You know? So teaching uh, things that, and now it depends, we could say there's a, a wing, which means the type next to us, mm -hmm. which is the two in my case, which means I would like to really help people through teaching. Yeah. I would like to see people, you know, get better. And so uh, ones are, uh, you know, they're just anything that gives them a chance to organize. I mean, ones can organize, you put anything in front of a one, they can usually organize it. You know, I need to find a one. <laughs> <laughs> Just clear out everything. <laughs> Not so much that they're neat, but it kind of is a sense that there's a place for things. Right, right. And that means physical things. It means mental things. Yeah. It means everything. There's a place for everything. And right. ones are really good with that. Yeah. So, um, for one, if you're looking at a client, and have you seen in your clients over the years that there is a preponderance of people who have a propensity toward teaching or are teachers who are ones or are most people not living their truth well it depends doesn't mean that they fall into certain occupations better but wherever they go that preoccupation is there right. with them right 
And so, yes, I have seen uh, ones, I've seen ones uh, working in finance and making sure things are exact, mm -hmm, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, I've seen ones working in a lot of fields, but you can always usually spot a one by um, understanding they're very critical of themselves. And so they often can be critical of other right. people without really knowing they project a lot. Right. So, uh, but it could be any occupation. I can't right. say I've really seen one occupation. Well, that's why I was, I was just wondering if one, like, I'm going to ask this at the end. What yeah. happens when you're living your not true self? And we'll talk about that a little later when we get done with the archetypes, if I remember. Okay. Okay. So let's, let's go through uh, to the number two then. Okay. Twos <laughs> are focused on others and being helpful to others. Uh, and they, uh, would like to know that what they do counts and that people will acknowledge them for what they do. So it gets tricky because again, strength. Yeah. Here I am. I'm helping you. Other side might feel like enough. You I've know. helped and no one's honoring or respecting or even noticing me. And, and they can yeah. flip over into anger Yes. and not being appreciated. Uh, and, and, and choose when they're really in their expanded self are just the most loving wonderful people because they can anticipate your needs mm -hmm. they know before you say or do anything they're watching yeah and they're attuned to the emotional life uh, i didn't say this but we're in the called the feeling center two threes and fours and so twos are very attuned to emotions mostly other people's though mm -hmm. and they're trying to encourage people to have positive emotions they're the, the first cheerleaders okay they're you can do it great support people in that way what they're not so good at is understanding their own feelings and their own needs and it becomes kind of a prideful thing that i know what you need and if we're to turn it around i'm fine I'm fine. I don't need anything. I don't. Yeah. Is that the, yeah. the kind of classic thing? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So might you find caregivers in this category? Often caregivers. I have found also that women sometimes overtype themselves in two. Yes, I think so. Because of their role uh, as mothers or just in, yes. in life and they just kind of take Even though that. they're not a natural two. Right. Yeah. Right. So I always, if people tell me they're a two, if they're women, I kind of usually check a little bit further to yeah. see. But uh, yes, it could be certainly uh, nurturing roles, nurses, teachers, again, yeah. in, in this case. Uh, but they could be in corporate America sure, as well. Sure, but they're anywhere. focused on others and the needs uh, of others. others. So it's really important for us if we see someone in our life who is like that to respect and honor them for what they give. Appreciate them. Appreciate them. And express yes. appreciation. Express appreciation. A long, a long Okay. <laughs> These are good. That's why I wanted to get through the types individually so yeah. we can learn how to be with each other yeah. better. Yeah. Okay, so number threes. Threes are often called achievers. And uh, they, I kind of think of them as like thoroughbred horses. And out of the gate, they go for the goal. They, yeah. They're, they're going to win the race. They don't have, that's all they can think about is where they're going. They don't think about even how to get there. They just move. They're good yeah. strategists, though, too. If you put something in front of a three and say, here's where you want to be, they will figure out the way to get there. So they're very focused on tasks very focused on goals, very focused on accomplishments. They, they identify so much with that, that what happens is that they forget about anything else in life except that. Mm -hmm. And so uh, feelings, feelings kind of get in the way for threes. It's like, it'll slow me down if I take time to feel. Uh, and if someone wants to come and share their feelings with me, oh, really? You know, do we, we have, have a lot to, to do. <laughs> and so, so I, I, I've learned, I kind of put it in the book, I think, you know, if you're around threes, don't express feelings to them unless they really ask for something like that. Right. Because it, that, it's not that they don't care. 
It's just that they're focused on task and moving ahead. And so uh, now our country is mostly a three country. Uh, yeah. It's yeah. kind of a three one country. It's kind mm -hmm. of funny. But we really value people who are self-made people, mm -hmm. people who will uh, accomplish things over all odds, you know, uh, will fight and will, will get compete. Mm -hmm. Threes are very competitive. And so it's a wonderful skill to have. But again, overdone. Uh, relationships can get really Well, I was just going to bring that up. So you must feel kind of run over or, or overlooked oftentimes if you're in companionship with a three. Yes, often threes will be so focused on, and it's not just career, but their image of success. Okay. So threes are very image-oriented. Mm -hmm. And it's not only that I do good things, but people are seeing me do that. Mm -hmm. So if you are in partnership with a three, they're going to want to make sure you look good. Okay. And they'll make sure Everybody's that you show well. Good. Okay, show well. <laughs> so for women, you might be an arm ornament to a three. It, it could be. Well, I and think I've been in that role a couple of times. <laughs> <All right. laughs> yeah. So, but the beautiful part of threes is that they, they're just so good at knowing how to do things. Mm -hmm. They have a sense of competence oftentimes and, and, and just the sense of being able to do. And I always, because as a one, I might overthink things. Mm -hmm. Threes don't generally overthink. Mm -hmm. They kind of go, here's the decision. Here's what we're going to do. Done. Next. And it's very yeah. simple to be around So it way. actually makes people around them, especially in work or even family, kind of feel comfortable that they know what they're doing. Yes. Okay. So yes. you can kind of relax. Say, she's got it. Yes. Or she's got it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, only they will only focus on things that matter to them, right. usually. Yeah, right. So there's that part of it. But yes. And so I have found myself, I have in the book, I think, a, a six trying to, uh, working for a three. And the six can get a good sense of confidence from yeah. the three. Yeah. You see, because they're, they're moving. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Number four. Okay. Uh, number four, it's often called a tragic romantic, which is in a way a terrible name. But fours, we talked about twos being uh, focused on other people's feelings. And three is kind of saying, do we really have to? Yeah. And four is saying, that's life. Deep feelings. Uh, not necessarily happy feelings, sad, any any of them right. matter. And they're kind of really, I would call them the deep divers in the world of emotions and feelings. Mm -hmm. They're very comfortable. They're very comfortable in uh, tragic situations. Or mm -hmm. uh, I know, I think, uh, four fours who are all grief counselors and have written on this. And they're wonderful at supporting people through these difficult times because to them, it's rich. Mm -hmm. And what I've learned to appreciate at fours is the richness that they carry. Mm -hmm. And they focus on authenticity, focus on things being real, people being real with them. You don't want to mess around with a four mm -hmm. uh, to try to be phony. They will spot it and they will often let you know. Yeah. Be very forthright. And I've found at times kind of being intimidated around fours because they, they can be really present with you and you kind of feel like if you're fudging or if you're not being authentic, they're going to feel it. <laughs> now they can go overboard too, where all of life is feeling and it's about their feelings. Mm -hmm. And so we all have to stop and listen to your feelings, your perceptions and feelings, your perceptions. And, and, you know, uh, and they, they can kind of get seduced by their own feelings, mm -hmm. meaning that they get, get full of themselves a bit. Yeah. Um, they're very quick. I, I had a four client for a number of years. She came to me. She had 
uh, gone through a very unhappy divorce. It wasn't something she really wanted. Mm -hmm. She had lost uh, a very, very close friend. She had lost her career and was starting over again. Mm -hmm. She was just really. So she cried for six months. Mm -hmm. And I don't, that's not unusual for a four to experience losses. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing about fours, that they are very attuned to loss and then the desire to find a way to fulfill that sense of emptiness and loss. Mm -hmm. um, and that can be, that's what sometimes is tragic romance. They keep longing for that perfect other, the perfect person who will get me, who will see <laughs> me in my depth. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh -oh. <laughs> and, and be able to meet me there. And they're often frustrated because it's, you can't find it. It's, you can't find it. it. That's not possible to get it from another and so they'll dismiss people. Yes. It's like, okay, I thought you were it, but you're not. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. We'll get back to that. So let's go to the five. The fives are uh, wonderful uh, researchers. They want to know the truth. They want to go to the source. They want to understand life through their heads. Mm -hmm. uh, I have, uh, oh, a friend who has uh, like a, a music researcher. He has gone into the, the instruments and the, the way that Bach, when he wrote his music with the kind of quill and the lighting and, and his most beautiful details about how things are done. Five love to figure out how things are done. Mm -hmm. And uh, they often will, you, I have it in the book, someone with, with, with books behind them. Right, right. Not all fives right. are studious or scholarly, but our best scholars are usually fives. A lot of my professors in graduate school were probably fives. They'll take, as the fours take a deep dive into emotions, mm -hmm. the fives take a deep dive into, into thoughts, knowledge. Into knowledge. Yeah. They really are so hungry for knowledge and they love having intellectual debates. I know some friends who are in a group called the philosophers and run by a philosophy professor and they discuss philosophy that way. Yeah. You know, and it's a it's a pastime and it's a passion yeah and uh it works great the emotional side for fives not so sure yeah like I, my son sounds a bit like a five in fact he started two philosophy clubs socrates <laughs> club in two different colleges universities right. and uh yeah. but wouldn't he didn't talk about his emotions no but he fives? loved the field of theory and ideas and great researcher exactly mm. fives are very private yeah, very private, yeah. And they often feel that other people are kind of intrusive. Mm -hmm. They want to know, they want to have my feel, please, I, there's a little barrier here. Because mm -hmm. they feel easily overwhelmed by others, especially by emotion. Uh -huh. And they want to go away and think about how they feel. Mm -hmm. And yes. they want to analyze it, you mm -hmm. see. Um, I had a client for a number of years who was a five. He came in with his wife. They went through an employee assistance program. We had three sessions together. And then she kind of pinned a note on him and said, here, Frank, you take care of him now, <laughs> private. You know. So I saw him for a couple of years. Now, I found that he, it was very difficult for him to really know what to do in therapy. And, you have to talk about your feelings. Yes. And, and so I would say, how was your week? Well, let me think about what I did. And he would go through <laughs> a list of things. And he would tell me about an argument he had with his wife. But she said, I said, well, how is that for you? And he would just sit there for a long time. And have to think, how was that for me? He, he had to really go deep to access that. Mm -hmm. And also, it wasn't like a four if I came in, we'll be talking. A five was kind of quiet. And I learned to really respect five's need for privacy mm -hmm. and, and understand that they, they need to have that internal space because they feel there's so much they have to think about and learn. There's not much time 
or mm-hmm. anything else. Or energy. It's about, about energy. They feel they have to contain their energy. So maybe with fives in relationship, oftentimes a partner feels they can't get a, a deep connection emotionally. Very much so. Yeah. Okay. And six. Sixes are... Um, it's a great point. I'm, I'm with a six. <laughs> <laughs> a one and a six. We'll oh, talk about that later. Well, yeah, that's yeah. a whole thing. But, uh, you know, sixes, these, the five, six, and seven are called to be fear-based and, and the mental types. Fives feel overwhelmed by the world uh, of the outer world, so they go to the inner world. Right. Uh, I'll skip ahead, but sevens are kind of afraid of the inner world, so they play in the outer world. The sixes are kind of afraid of both. Okay. It's like if I, the world is not a safe place. I don't know what people are up to. I can't really trust what's going on. Uh, I, I need to check things out. I'm a little cynical, but I'm careful, and I'm watching out for me and for my loved ones. Uh, so if they tend to be suspicious, and if they want to go in, they have a hard time being certain about that what they think is really true mm-hmm. or what they feel is really true. So there's a lot of doubt that goes on in the six. Mm-hmm. And, and sixes, though, are incredibly often community-oriented. They will take up the cause. They will be protesters. If something doesn't feel right in the world, they're going to make sure that they do their part because it's more like the we for the mm-hmm. six. And they can be very compassionate and really right there. The thing that really distinguishes sixes is their loyalty. Mm. And I, I, I feel it in my own life. Yes. I mean, when someone is a six and they're with you, they're with it. you. That there is nothing coming right. between right. that. And and that's an incredible gift. So they're very have. relationship people oriented. Very much so. Yeah. Unless they get so phobic and they can't deal with people. Well, that's true. <laughs> and Howard Hughes and have Kleenex on yes, their that's Kleenex boxes uh, on their uh, feet. Uh, yeah. A very contracted six. Yeah, yeah. And sevens. Sevens love life. Mm-hmm. Sevens love to play. Mm-hmm. Sevens love opportunities. They love to travel or they just love to have freshness and new things yeah. and stimulation. And especially in the outer world, you want your travel agent to be a seven. Yeah. You know, I've gone traveling. <laughs> so they know where the good stuff is. That's just travel guide. They're going to just say the best restaurants. I'll show you this. It's great. And I love the seven friends that I have in yeah. my life. Um, and they they will tend to think about what will make them happy. And they just assume that you will go along being happy with what they're happy with. Right. <laughs> so a little self-absorption, perhaps? It kind of sets in. There's yeah. a tenant. We all yeah. have it. But the sevens, yeah. because how could you not enjoy what I'm enjoying? Yeah. Look at this. It's so cool. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. sevens have difficulty in relationship because they tend to not be able to easily go into where someone else is, especially if someone is sad or if someone is having not positive emotions right. they just kind of don't know where to go because seven's the fear that they have of the inside what would happen if i found out that i'm not as happy as i think right what would happen if i go in there and you know it's difficult things and sevens will tend to make light of situations that are heavy mm-hmm. and they can be the comics for us which can really help but at a certain point you want to say cool it yeah just yeah. be here with what's going on yeah even if it's uncomfortable and painful mm-hmm. give them a hug mm-hmm. number eight number eights are full of great energy they they they're kind of bigger than life often they're actually big people i don't mean fat but i mean just kind of big yeah. presence yeah and when i've done panels which means you ask people to come and talk about being that type and there's rows set up often the h will separate their chairs from one another because they want their own territory 
And so eights are very much uh, command people. Mm -hmm. They will look at a situation and assume the commanding position, whether or not anyone asks them to do it. Mm -hmm. I've worked with an eight who is a CEO of a company. He was great because he he wants to get to business. He doesn't want to go through any BS. Yeah. And after a few minutes of conversation, okay, I think we're done. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. And I just so, love that. Because yeah. you know where you stand. And he would tell you where you were. Yeah. You, you know. So He'll tell great. you where you stand. Yes, yeah. tell you where he was and where, <laughs> and you, where, you, where are. you were and where you need to be. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but they're just, but there's this, oftentimes a gruffness about H. They don't have much finesse. Mm-hmm. They can be kind of bold and sensitive. Yeah. But when you get to know them, Oh my God, they are the most tender hearted people and they are out to protect the vulnerable in life. Mm. And if they pick up that you need their support, they are there completely for you. Mm. I mean, you can't get any better support than from an eight who will step up and fight for you if need be. So in, if you're in a relationship uh, with an eight, you find that it's kind of, you're going to be you're assessed quite a bit and you're going to be told how things are going. But on the other hand, if you need them, they're going to be there. Very much so. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good way to say it. Okay, now we get to nines. Nines. Nines have this externally, this most wonderful kind of placid demeanor oftentimes. Most people just love nines. They're very easy to be around. Because nines, it's kind of like a a sea anemone or something that's just kind of floating. Flows with things. And they float with things. And they they don't really have a lot of attention on themselves, it looks like, because it and so the, the strength and the weakness is that they can go along with people, but then you don't know really where they are or what they want. And nines often wake up. Let's say they are in a relationship with someone. They thought, oh, they, they would call it merging with somebody. Mm-hmm. That energy is, okay, I'll just become that energy. And they may wake up later and say, how did I get here? <laughs> <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so they have a hard time knowing their own needs and desires. Right. Um, and yet they're the most wonderful mediators. Uh, they know how to see all points of view. It's kind of, it's at the top of the, of the, the enneagram, uh, mm-hmm. of the triangle, of the mm-hmm. inner triangle. So it's kind of like this wonderful overview of people and a sense of accepting, like everyone has a place. Mm-hmm. We really could really use a lot more nine, you know, mm-hmm. but nines have difficulty sometimes mobilizing themselves mm-hmm. or taking charge. They can't do it. But it's not their most natural place, mm-hmm. see. So they really like working in teams, and they can say, well, you know, coordinate different people working together, and they're excellent at that. But they can get lost in other people and not know what their needs are, not know where they begin and someone else right. ends. And... Yeah. and you don't find out until they get really angry about something you didn't know. Yeah. And uh, and they don't know either. Right. I'm sorry. They, yeah. they <laughs> touch myself. Yeah. They... Uh, they don't know, and so it can be hard to know where a nine is. Right. Um, so in partnership, you have to kind of pull things out of them. Right. And nines feel that if they express a strong opinion, that might send you away, because what their focus really is on connecting. Right. They feel right. essential to stay connected. Oh, yeah. If yeah. I have a disagreement and we disconnect, I'm going to feel panicky. Right, right. Okay, so... Thank you so much. You're so good at explaining this. Of course, I guess 40 years of practice helps. Um, But uh, I would like to talk just a little bit then. You mentioned a one and a six, you and your partner, one and a six. Mm -hmm. And then uh, talk about kind of a a really 
easy sort of combination or match if we're looking at just kind of classically cliche easy you know the one that comes to mind it's this is a real classic is the one seven okay you think about a rule-based wanting to do things right a little uptight make sure that you don't just uh loosely do something but think about it you want to be appropriate mm -hmm. you want to act that's a very important for act appropriately yeah. a seven is like Let's go and yeah. let's play. Why are you so uptight? Yeah. I think there's plenty of movies about this yes. kind of archetype oh, yeah. thing. Lighten up, would you? You know, they seven will say to the one, and the one will say, why don't you pull it in a little bit? It's like you're always out there, and we have serious things to do here. You know. So someone else would say, wow, that seems like pretty opposite. You'd say, no, this is a good match. Well, the thing it pulls something out of each other. You do. And if you can take that, and but the, here's the secret. You have to see that you have that other person in you. Yeah. And one thing, I, don't, I haven't read about this, but I've observed through the years that oftentimes people are in partnerships or significant relationships with people who with, they share the connecting line. Mm -hmm. The one connects over to the seven. Mm -hmm. Some say that that for the one is a heart space. When I feel expanded, I can mm -hmm. go there. Uh, for the sevens to come to the one, it's usually not too pretty because they get critical. Uh -huh. But I have found that we tend to attract people who are connected to us through these connecting lines in the Enneagram. And if you want to use relationship as a path for growth, mm -hmm. this can really work. Yes. Because it's your shadow that's over there. We're oftentimes drawn to the person who is our own shadow. And then we make them wrong, as so one would. You know? Yeah. But it, but we have to learn to embrace that. Interesting. And and the the counterpoint to the narrowness of each type is fine. It's nothing wrong. It's just that it gets narrow. And the enneagram is so brilliant in saying, expand out. You actually have all of these other eight qualities in you. Right. You're not just one thing. It just might you might be the dominantly express one thing. Exactly. Because when you look at it, there are, it's often two or even three dominant parts that right. will come up. And if you take a kind of classic Enneagram tests, which you can do online, you can find one and do a little Enneagram test and a bunch of questions, and it overlays pretty well with what you would kind of self-identify in your book, I noticed. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's talk about maybe a more challenging uh, combination classically. Yes. Um I don't have, well, it's dramatic if not challenging. I was thinking about this, like the four and eight. Mm -hmm. They're both very intense. Right. The four is very intense with, with feelings and inner feelings and, and having to be an individual and no one's really like me. The eight, as you know, is kind of a very strong, intense energy, more outwardly directed. I'm not sure, but if you take a movie like uh, Vicky Cristina of Barcelona, yes, uh -huh. Javier Bardem and yeah. Penelope Cruz, yeah. these Boom. explosions. <laughs> <laughs> well, it ended up in marriage, yes. in real life. Yeah. <laughs> but that to me, you know, I don't know if it's challenging, but it is because they really have to monitor the intensity since they both share that. Right. See. It's kind of like their overdone strains can really take them down a right. certain path. Um, I think for challenging, uh, Let's say a, a, a two and a five. Mm -hmm. The two wants to really help and please, please. You and, know, the and the five, five is, is like, like I'm researching. Don't bug me. I don't want to think about. I don't want to feel. Okay, bad. honey, I'll, I'll leave yeah. you a cup of coffee and I'll leave you alone. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, so that could feel a little dry, a little painful for the two. 
Yes. Yeah, that makes and sense. intrusive on the fives part. And intrusive and on the fives. And they just keep trying yeah. to get into their own privacy part. Yeah, and so you just they run they they keep pulling away from you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I did the little test, you know, because mm -hmm. I'm looking, I love your book. So I'm looking mm -hmm. at it and my husband and I both did it. Okay. And so I told you our numbers and you didn't even comment. You just started laughing. Well, you tell me again okay. because you well, said. Well, what it was, what we came up with in the test, we, we took an online test, yeah. right? And we ended up where um, I was like a 792 and he was a 481. Okay. And you started laughing. <laughs> <laughs> I laugh a lot with this stuff. Well, I have to think about why. I, if I take your first one, seven, you yeah. think you might be a seven. Seven, um, seven, nine, one is seven, a two. Seven, nine. Both, but it, it seemed a little more seven than nine. Okay. And him, the first one being? Four, eight. Okay. Is that why you laughed? <laughs> that well, intensity. A four, well, a four, eight is, is so a, intense. He's so intense. brilliant, but so intense. Yes. Yeah. They're intense, and especially for sevens who want to keep things up and yeah. light, yeah. fours can really, sevens feel like that four is really dragging me down. Yeah. You know. It can rain on your parade, and yes. the four is saying, can't you just be where this is? Can't you be where I am with the suffering? And life is it has suffering, and it's like, suffering? Why? Can't we get over that part faster? <laughs> You've got it. You know this stuff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's what would happen. And yeah. so to grow together, the four would have to understand that sometimes it's okay to just lighten up. Yeah. And enjoy. Yeah. You know, and they can. And the seven has to once in a while say, okay, maybe life is not you. always going to be up and happy. Yeah. Yeah. And there's some richness in what you have to, what you're yes. holding here. And I've seen sevens begin to really appreciate that. Because fours can help bring the seven in. Yeah. And sevens generally need that. Yeah, yeah. And then the other part was the nine and then the eight. And we both relate strongly to those as well. Well, actually, very good because those are wings. Meaning that yes. if you uh, mm -hmm. are a seven with an eight wing and he's a nine with an eight. Or an eight he's a four. Well, I don't know about wings, but he just came out dominant four, eight. And I came out dominant That's, seven and nine. Yeah. yeah. So, and that squishy part, just flowing and wanting to be part of and yes. flowing in with and saying, how'd I get here? Yeah. I totally get that one. You yes. can't tell yourself from someone else in the room. Right. Anyone in the room. Yeah. Yeah. And then his ability to say, hey, this is how it is. And I can handle it. The eight. Mm -hmm. You know, I know I know where everyone's supposed to be. Right. Take their place. <laughs> it, it, and it is interesting. There's so much richness and so much up and down and to work with. Oh, it's it's just it's <laughs> it's a wonderful thing to watch. So once you begin to know the Enneagram more and integrate yeah. it, you begin to see it all around you. Yes. And it becomes almost entertainment too, because you're watching. Oh, I think so. I love things. it. Well yeah. the thing I like about your book is that because it's so approachable, it's direct, and because you made it so essential mm -hmm. when you got down to the values of each one. Mm-hmm. Um the characteristics and how to interact with them. It was just so to the point Good. that you could use the book for people who are unfamiliar with it. Yes. And you could even make, have fun at a, at a dinner party or whatever and, and play with these parts mm -hmm. so that you start understanding and seeing each other in a whole different way. Mm -hmm. Even if you don't know your type or someone, yeah. you at least go, I'm curious. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's the opening door. Yeah. Just I'm curious now. Yeah, and to, and just with this innate understanding, there's more compassion if we can accept that we're all different. And here you're going to see we're all very different. We come from a completely different place of what we need, desire, want, and don't want. 
Yes. And we all have uh, things we want to move towards yeah. and things we want to avoid. Yes. I mean, I've, I've seen through yes. the years that people are very simple. We are. We're amoeba. Of, we scooch yes. away from the uncomfortable, and we're attracted <laughs> to the things that are sweet and nice. And everyone is doing that. Everyone. But in their own way. Exactly. That, in fact, that's we used to joke about that, about the amoeba quality of life, where if it's uncomfortable, I just start scooching away. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. so I find that compassion really helps because you want people to be more in their expanded self. Yes. And when you lead from your heart, people feel it. Yes. And they relax. Yes. And they relax. They're kind of okay with who they are. And they show more of who they are. And you meet. And it's this meeting human to human is what I call it. It's fun. If, yes. if you can just drop the defenses and say, hey, we all have our burdens and we all have our beauty. So let's talk about it. Exactly. Any final thoughts? This has been a lovely conversation. I want to just say that that earlier that the, the kindness is is just the medicine. Yes. And I find the Enneagram, you asked about the world and so forth. This is great medicine. Yes. I tried to make the medicine go down a little easier with my book. Oh, you have a lot of sugar in there, that beautiful artwork in the distillation. Yeah, I love the Nancy who did my artwork. I, I am so grateful. Uh, but it's it's I just find it gives me a place to sit in life where I can appreciate people. There are people who still really bother me, and there are people who I just... But you're a one. They'll always Oh, you. They, they, it's, it, you just turn the wrong way, and I'm angry. You know? But it's a practice. So I'm not saying go and be nice. Yeah. I'm saying do the practice of kindness, yeah. which means how do I allow myself to see if I can understand life from another person's point of view? Mm -hmm. I may not like it but I can at least see what it is and see in my own human self if I have that same place in me. That's the beauty of the Enneagram. Thank you so much for writing this beautiful book. Thank you very much. Appreciate it, Regina. Again, Frank's book is titled A Field Guide to Humans Using the Enneagram to Improve Your Relationships, which you can find through major booksellers. Such a sweet and personal read, and it allows us to be kinder, as we just talked about, and more understanding with one another. And we're all on our beautiful and unique journey. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on Open Minds. entities were you dealing with so many actually just this interdimensional highway you say basically i'm not crazy i just see things she said i don't think you're schizophrenic i think something else is going on she said i think you're psychic through my psychic development i knew that i had to be super present because psychic information only comes in the now exactly it was almost an electrified way of being human i am an akashic records reader 
and that might be different from a psychic reading although yes. i think psychic readings are so valuable but one of the obstacles that one can run into is raise your hands if you have felt out of sync with the normal world around you you're not alone our guest today bonnie mcclis felt very out of sync with the world, only to find that she was just psychic. So, welcome, Bonnie. It's Thank good to have you with me. me. Yes, I'm excited. Yeah, so gosh, you had a rough ride. I did. Oh, I my really did. God. Yes. A psychic yes. as a little kid. I mean, I've interviewed a lot of people who were psychic and saw things when they were a little kid. But what happened to you is just crazy because you were literally singled out and almost kind of tortured as a result right. so let's right. just dive right into your life as a little kid and the things you were seeing and how your parents and the world around you reacted to it yeah yeah absolutely and actually in hindsight when i think about it i'm like i don't really know how it it's was, horrifying yeah how i survived but um at the time of the experience you know i just was you know mostly just trusting what i was told uh, to a certain extent but so you know early on it was quite natural for me to have these um, conversations or these experiences uh, my earliest memory would be these lights that would hover over my bed at night when i was little almost had like an angelic kind of choral sound mm -hmm. and it was beautiful and i would tell my mom and um, of course as parents do she would say oh it's just your imagination you know you're mm -hmm. such an over over imaginative child um so that was beautiful and then from there i had you know the classic psychic child imaginary a friend exchange mm -hmm. um and that was that was fairly accepted uh, my mom bless her she tried so hard um, she made dolls when i was young to try to embody all of my well that's friends. actually very supportive and mm -hmm. sweet she was she tried she really was just kind of guided by the medical community and i think right. that's when things got a little off track so you know as as i just stayed this kind of wide open child when i became you know early adolescence around you know 11 12 i started to scare the adults around me because when you're a little this. kid and you have little mm -hmm. imaginary friends it's cute yeah. But by the time yeah. you hit puberty, it's not really cute anymore. They're no. scared. No, right? no, no. Like, quick shift. Is she crazy or yeah. what? And, yeah. and so you had this time in your life, though, where you were very comfortable with your, quote, imaginary, in other words, other dimensional friends right. and guys that were speaking to you yes. and, and keeping you company in life. Yes. And then you started interacting more with other children and you thought, well, that's strange they're the ones that f the guides feel totally normal mm -hmm. and simpatico it's the kids that feel a little odd yes that's exactly right yes and, I, and then at that point you know i kind of had that odd man out had a hard time mm -hmm. making friends which i think was another indicator that something uh different was you know something was setting me apart mm -hmm. but again i think as human beings you know we just know what we know it's hard to know where we're different until we meet that contrast mm -hmm. until we meet that kind of you know fear of it um so you know as i as i got older my mom brought me to a series of doctors um and they all had their different ideas but really at the end uh, the last doctor said i you know gave me the diagnosis of early onset schizophrenia <laughs> <laughs> because you were talking to people that weren't there yes yeah like mm -hmm. someone on the street who yes. has lost their bearings seemingly yes. but the thing is a lot of the people on the street who have lost their bearings are also dealing with yes. other dimensional beings talking to them right and feeling the emotions mm -hmm. i think as a child it was mm -hmm. i could feel um 
such extreme emotions, which I think a lot of people right now can relate to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would just have these just these these cry fits because I could feel the pain of of another. So again, they could not understand why I would have these right uh, you know emotional mood swings because there didn't seem to be any stimuli for it in right. your third right. dimensional world. Right. Exactly. What kinds of experiences were you having? at that time when you say you would take on the emotions what kind of entities were you dealing with were you interacting with so many actually um i think when you're that open as a child it's just a smorgasbord you know i believe Mm -hmm. it's just this uh just this interdimensional highway so it was everything from i think now just non-human forms to you know spirits to just these just pockets of human pain and energy and again as a child you know you're trying to find your own identity and find your own voice but you know mostly early on i noticed a lot of the pull would be from uh deceased loved ones or earthbound spirits uh, that would definitely have a message or a call so now we get into the early teen years where you've been diagnosed. So then what happens? The doctor that I was seeing at the time thought that uh, it was just kind of a culmination of events that I should go into a facility. Um, so they went ahead and placed me into a facility, putting me on heavy um, heavy drugs, heavy antipsychotics, um, which the, the psychic visions changed drastically at that point. Um, you wrote about red eye rats. Yeah, yeah. It really. wasn't your friends anymore. So do you think that it tweaked your brain frequency simply to a level where you were kind of accessing lower dimensional Exactly. I think that's exactly what happened. I believe it brought me to the lower planes, which, you know, I'm grateful for now to see kind of like the the many different uh, dimensions and time and space, you know, that I was involved with. But yeah, absolutely. I think it brought my world to a, you know, to a lower realm, indefinitely. And so... During this time, what happened with you? I mean, you're obviously you're out of school during some really critical years. You're not bonding and making friends doing during these times when girls really kind of like like to chat a lot and need each other. That was none of that was Mm. happening for you. No, no, no. In fact, the medication that I was put on uh, distorted my eyesight quite quite a bit. So I just I just kind of um, I just kind of hung out in the shadows. You know, I took solace and you know some kind of different state of consciousness, a lot of it kind of lost uh, memory in that time, but I just kind of got through and, you know, just did the best that I could. Um, and, you know, again, gaps and gaps in education and How long did just go on? Um, you know, the actual institution wasn't, is, wasn't that long. It was just a few months, mm-hmm. um, but it was kind of coming out of it, you know, trying to find that baseline. Yeah. Um, I actually even remember the moment, uh, you know, I was fighting and rallying, um, trying to, uh, even as a young person, acknowledge this as a special thing or a beautiful thing, um, you know, to kind of stand up for the other side in a sense. And with nobody validating that and with nobody giving me feedback that that's an option, I remember that single moment where I just said, fine, have it, then you'll be right. Mm-hmm. Then I give up. Mm-hmm. And I just told myself, well, maybe you are hallucinating. And so mm-hmm. it's just that shift in perspective. So when you got out of there, you were in acceptance that you were hallucinating yeah yeah there comes a point where you're dealing with a psychiatrist Mm -hmm. and they're trying to look at the veracity because you say basically i'm not crazy i just see things right yes and she put you through a test 
Yes. Yeah. Let's talk about that because that was really a breaking free point for you, wasn't it? A liberation. Yes, point. it was. I remember um, coming into the office of this beautiful, benevolent woman, um, just uh, this doctor, and and, it, and just kind of exposing my heart, and just I just remember crying, you mm -hmm. know, uh, for the first session, and and uh, giving her my background of being schizophrenic, and just and fully assuming that I was still at, at this point mm -hmm. broken, um, even though I saw things, didn't know there was another option. And she listened to me so lovingly and so patient until she, she gave me this news. She said, I don't think you're schizophrenic. I think something else is going on. And I didn't know, you know, I think, great, another diagnosis. Here, mm -hmm. we, here we go. I've been through so many. And uh, she said, I think you're psychic. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what's that mean? You know, what's a psychic? <laughs> and I did, so I didn't believe it. I did a little research. And, of course, I loved Sylvia Brown um, on Montel, you know, but didn't see myself that way. Uh, but she, she said, okay, if you don't believe me, I'm going to put you through a little experience, a little test. So she said, close your eyes, and I want you to tell me, what does my house look like? And I panicked, you know, I was so nervous. I'm thinking, I don't want to disappoint her. She's my first grace I've seen in, in a while. Right. And um, I said, I don't know what your house looks like. And she said, yes, you do. Just amazing, her confidence, you know, even at this juncture. So she kept pushing me uh, a little bit more just to, just to kind of really trust my instincts. And I did. I said, okay, well, you live in a White House, two-story. She said, yeah, I do. Keep going, Bonnie. I said, well, it's like uh, Cape Cod style, Cape Cod style. She said, that's exactly right. 